0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich 1431 CE, something no one ever aspires to have written on their obituary. Uh, Think about the intensity of that. She was tied to a stake, most likely with rope. Heretics were either tied to a, you know, pillar or stake or chain. Bundles of sticks were placed beneath her around the base. And then the wood was set on fire. Sometimes an executioner would, would help the heretic along by essentially hanging them while the fire got going beneath them, hitting them across the chest with a club to speed up their demise. This doesn't seem to be the case with Joan. She wasn't that lucky. There's a a chance that she died, or at least she passed out from smoke inhalation before the fire got her, or she didn't, and the last thing she felt on this earth was the lick of those flames burning, searing, cooking her flesh. One legend of her burning says she was actually burned three times, that she died during the first time, but it took two additional burnings to destroy her organs. Whether it took once, twice, three times, she was only 19 years old when she was tried for heresy, found guilty, and then burned. She'd been captured fighting for her beloved France during the Hundred Years' War between the French and English crowns, a war she helped win for France. And then the monarch she fought for, the one one that she put on the throne, essentially abandoned her. Joan was a deeply religious young woman who believed God himself commanded her to fight. And she was so adamant about being one of God's chosen warriors and so convincing that her mission was bestowed upon her from above that this rural peasant girl persuaded Charles VII to let her lead troops against the English and their allies to claim the throne of France for him. And today, over 600 years after her birth, nearly 600 years since her death, we dig deep into the life and times of the young warrior that became one of France's most enduring and beloved figures today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> Happy Monday, Time Suckers! Happy Memorial Day! Finally, I remember a holiday, always tricky, when I'm not recording, on the uh, the day that the episode comes out. Please take a moment today to recognize those who have sacrificed their lives, made the ultimate sacrifice, defending freedom, here in the United States, those uh, who have died fighting for their own nations, you know, worldwide, and throughout history, people such as Joan of Arc. Uh, thank you also for clicking play, thanks for subscribing, thanks for rating and reviewing, thanks for letting us suck Slap your noggin, week to suck and week. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Suck Master. You are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious. Hail Nimrod. Time Suck is brought to you today by Amerigas. Amerigas specializes in bottled American farts. And they're giving away free fart bottles to the first Time Suckers to call into 1-800-AMERICAN-FART-BOTTLE. Did you know you could heat your entire home on the consequences of the poor dietary decisions of other Americans? That's ridiculous. No. Amerigas sells propane to fuel your grill, you silly goose. It's grilling season. Get some get some burgers. Get some steaks, some chicken breasts, some, some shrimps, some salmons, some fishes, some other meats, some other delightful meats, and put them on your grill and put them in your mouth. And I have an exciting opportunity for Time Suckers. Amerigas Cylinder Exchange is giving away a Weber grill to one lucky person. It's very easy to register to win. You go to mytimesuckgrill.com, M-I-T-I-M-E-S-U-C-K-G-R-I-L-L.com, enter your name and email address, and that's it. doesn't get simpler. mytimesuckgrill.com, enter to win an awesome prize, thanks to Amerigas. The contest runs through uh, July 4th, so you're going to have your, uh, your brand new Weber Spirit 2 E210 two-burner propane gas grill. That's when you get to win it. $400 grill for free. I registered, and I'll be honest, I hope I win, which is probably not legal. It's probably not legal for me to win. So my email is probably going to be tossed out, but yours won't. You can pick your Amerigrass uh, tanks at uh, your local Home Depot, Dollar General Store, so many other locations nationwide. In Houston, San Diego, Knoxville, and Tulsa, Amerigrass actually has vending machines, gas vending machines at Walmarts to make it very easy. So this Memorial Day, uh, you know, uh, you know, if this is you know when you're hearing this, or after Memorial Day, if you're hearing it later, You know, while you're cleaning off your old grill, make sure you register to let me give you a brand new grill, a Weber. Go to MyTimeSuckGrill.com. Again, register to win. Amerigas sponsoring the show for the next six weeks. You're going to have plenty of chances. And the winner, again, announced uh, right after the 4th on July 6th. That's when July 6th, right after July 4th, is when the winner is announced. Uh, And you have up to the 4th to do it. And again, exchange your tanks at Home Depot, Walmart, Dollar General, 7-Elevens and more. Enter to win a new Weber grill. Go to TimeSuckGirl.com. Also, TimeSuck brought to you by the Tom and Dan 2019 Cruise. Tickets still available to a mediocre time with Tom and Dan. Uh their cruise March 7th to 11th, Cape Canaveral, Florida. You just go to TomAndDanCruise.com. grab your cabin. There's not there's not that many left. Uh it's going to be sold out. Get a huge discount on a really fun cruise that I will be on, doing a podcast, I'm sure, with the T and D gang. Lindsay's going to be there. Uh, gonna be a lot of day drinking, a lot of ruckus are happening. Uh you can easily access the website for the cruise with tons of other info and the Amerigas grill giveaway by going to the sponsor section of either timesuckpodcast.com or the app the timesuck app just push the button we try to make it easy for you here on timesuck in the suck dungeon today surrounded by the uh by the artwork the timesuck community is sent in here to the suck dungeon people send stuff into PO box 3891 CDA Idaho 83816 it's so nice i'm so thankful Recording in a cocoon of support, and it feels good. And I'm here uh, uh, with the uh, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell. He's always making the sound so sweet. And um, throw myself under the bus today uh, during today's Time Sucker update. So stay tuned for that. Turns out I may have been last week's idiot of the internet. And my Japanese pronunciation abilities may be sorely lacking. Not entirely surprising since I don't speak Japanese and have never studied anything thoroughly going on in that country. Thanks to uh, Aaron, Adam, and the gang at the Galena Mine in Wallace, Idaho for taking Lindsay and I a mile underground a week ago. That was so awesome to see where zinc, lead, copper, silver, and more has been mined for 130 years. Got to work on a little – got to hold a mining tool about a mile underground. Very cool. Uh, all uh, all because of Time Suckers. And uh, looking forward to the Time Suckers coming to the Suck Dungeon tomorrow afternoon, May 29th, 3 to 7 p.m., Little Open House at 2215 East Sherman Ave, Suite 109. Coeur Idaho, 83814. Probably going to do some wrestling. What's this big deal? So we wrestle. This time sucks show love. We wrestle, we stroke, we love, we support. It's going to be great. Uh, thanks, you suckers, for taking advantage of the Memorial Day sale. Uh, man, everything's about wiped out. Uh, getting that uh, 25% off with the Heroes discount at checkout. You got until midnight tonight if you haven't done it. And, uh, yeah, I got some really fucking kick-ass merch coming this way uh, into the store soon. I'm really stoked for the new stuff. And uh, Lindsay and I will be in Phoenix just a few days, May 31st through June 3rd, Flat Earth Tour, rolling into the Tempe Improv. Garth Reynolds from the Dollop Podcast doing some kick-ass stand-up as well. And then uh, next week, DC heads to DC. DC plus DC equals Flat Earth Jokes getting told in our nation's capital. June 8th and 9th, going to be at the Draft House in Washington, DC. 15th and 16th of June, going to be in uh, Des Moines, the Funny Bone, two nights only. Tickets on sale there as well. And if you're a new listener, No, I'm not a flat earther. I'll be mocking it. July 12th and 14th, uh, heading to Orlando, back to the improv, joining Tom and Dan there on the 15th for a live time suck. Comedy store in La Jolla, July 20, 22nd. Dayton, Ohio, July 27, 28. So much more at dancummins.tv. And now, time for some medieval warfare nonsense. Let's suck on some Joan of Arc. Joan was born at the beginning of the 15th century in a little village uh, in in northeastern France during a period of confusion and turmoil. Uh, Her father worked with rabbits designing corn mazes. Her mother taught puppets to speak Portuguese. And that is nonsense. We're going to get into the specifics of her birth and life in a timeline here in a bit. Uh, Joan was born during the Hundred Years' War between France and England and uh, intermittent struggles in a series of battles Lasted well over 100 years, actually. It took place during the 14th and 15th centuries and revolved around a variety of disputes, a big one being the question of the legitimate succession to the French crown. Love it when we go Game of Thrones here on the Suck House Lannister versus House Stark versus House Targaryen versus House Donald McRonald. God, I wish that last one was a real Game of Thrones house. Struggle over what land belonged to which kingdom Involved several generations of English and French Claimants to the crown The official start date to this particular war Is 1337 CE But there had been periodic fighting over the question Of England, uh, English Fiefs in France going back to the 12th century When King Henry I of England Had laid claim to some land in modern day France Uh, he had taken from his brother Robert Curthouse Uh, who, uh Who was Duke of Normandy Felt he had a Blood right to a little patch of, you know, France here and a little little patch of France there. Henry and Robert were the sons of William the Conqueror, a.k.a. Wilbur the Vanquisher, a.k.a. Bilbur the Trouncer, a.k.a. I'll show myself out. William was a Norman king who was born in modern day France and conquered England in 1066 CE after his cousin, his first cousin, Edward the Confessor, died. Edward had named a powerful English Earl, Harold Godwinson, to be his successor. Harold was not his son. Uh, Edward was childless, so William fought for the open throne and he took it, ending the long reign of Anglo-Saxon kings in England, starting a new Norman succession. Claims to the throne, man, so many various claims to the throne, the cause of so, so many wars. So many people have died throughout history because of convoluted European bloodlines, fighting for the local castle owner, prince, earl, baron, etc., you know, who either you know felt they had a, a rightful claim to some throne or county or province. Sometimes men who who didn't have a claim but just felt like they could take it fought for it, and their soldiers followed them into battle. You know, hoping a victory would improve their shitty medieval status. You know, get a little get a little land for themselves. You know, no longer just be a shit eaten bottom-dwelling peasant. Now they could maybe sleep in an unair-conditioned house of stone instead of an unair-conditioned house of of, of wood. Have the doctor use the good leeches on them when they came around for some bloodletting. Life was terrible. Thanks to numerous political marriages used to uh, solidify allegiances between kingdoms through bloodlines or to expand kingdoms through bloodlines, medieval Europe had a whole lot of, uh, you know, this guy is the king of this kingdom, but also is the prince of that kingdom. And he's technically the duke of this province. And as the nephew to this other king who didn't produce a son uh, is now third in line to that crown. So, you know, naturally, a lot of fighting because of this. Suddenly, you know, your country could technically belong to a rival country's monarchy when you're like, you know, king dies through some legitimate or, or quasi-legitimate blood claim to the throne. And you might not care for that. You know, it, it, that that didn't always set well with the locals when some foreign king suddenly became the heir to their throne and a war would break out. And they'd fight, you know, off the foreign throne claimer rather than just hand over their kingdom to a leader they weren't familiar with or maybe they didn't like or maybe they didn't feel uh, had a legitimate claim. You know, maybe this maybe this duke felt he could make more money Uh, Under this king than that king and so you know he'd pick his allegiance that way there was a lot of that you know when there was a fight for the throne it's like all right out of the people fighting for it who's going to do the most for me you know Uh, and there was always you know like uh, well you know will this king let my daughter marry his son so that then my you know uh, you know lineage can hopefully get into the crown as well everyone was just looking for you know uh, something to gain uh, or, or someone to protect what they'd already been given it's all very political. And this sort of shit is happening in France big time in the early 14th century. King Charles IV had died in 1328, and like a total fucking asshole, he had the the nerve to die not having produced an heir, even though he had lived until the ancient medieval age of 33 years old. What a dick. What a selfish dick. And his death set off a series of battles between those who thought the throne rightfully belonged to them. Initially, Charles was succeeded in Navarre, uh, now part of Spain even uh, though they'd uh, be their own separate Basque nation by his niece, Joan II, and he was succeeded in France proper by his cousin, Philip of Valois, uh, who would become King Philip VI. That's right. He had two kingdoms under one throne. He dies, and now they go back to being two separate kingdoms. That shit went on all the time, that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, a man in England named King Edward III took full control of the English throne in 1330 following a brief hiccup in lineal rule over there. And initially, he was cool with King Philip VI. Being the new king of France He was content to let Phil do his thing He's going to let Phil be Phil And then he's going to be Ed Doing Ed shit across the channel But then Philip pissed Ed off Philip took back some land within France That had belonged to Edward's predecessor His father King Edward II And Eddie III, he didn't care for that You know, it was, it was so like Philip To start taking people's shit Classic Phil that's, that's Phil being Phil That's a quintessential Phil power move So because Edward didn't like what Phil to Phil Fill the pill. There we go. What's up, to, He suddenly remembered that he actually had a claim to the French throne himself. He he totally forgotten about that. You know, he was like, you know, what we need to find is another claim to the throne. Someone who will work with us. Someone like me. Wait, 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 wait. Not not someone like me. Someone exactly like me. Someone who is me. What we need is me. I will be the claim to the throne. I've got to be related to that bastard somehow. we're, we're all related, aren't we? My eyes did not end up this close together due to my parents not fucking their cousins. Hurry, someone who isn't the product of multi-generational incense, please, please decipher my family tree. Supply me with favorable fortune. So in 1337, Edward elected to assert his claim to the French crown as the only living male descendant of his deceased maternal grandfather, Philip IV, but then invoking Salic Law, which banned succession among uh, along female lines, the French flatly rejected Edward's claim to the throne, and shit was on. Let's get it on! In this corner, we have King Edward, the hopeful. In this other corner, King Charles the Scared. Let's get it on! Uh, and yeah, it was a wrestling match. Now, initially, uh, England had a strong advantage in its battles against the English, and this advantage was known as the English longbow. Uh, I love, like, uh, medieval warfare kind of history. It allowed the English to pick apart the French from afar. So these longbows, these bad boys, were about six and a half feet tall, and it was rumored that they could rain down arrows from over 300 yards out. And and their big, heavy arrows dropping from the sky would cut right through chainmail, cut right through armor. And and the British were very proficient with these longbows in the 14th century, and the French were not. So advantage, heavy advantage, England. Uh, In the Battle of Cressy, in 1346, the longbow uh, led to the English under King Edward losing less than 300 men while the French forces fighting under King Philip lost 13 to 14,000 men. Damn, man. Uh, the French had, had, had uh, roughly 50 times as many casualties in that battle, uh, which they lost, of course. England under King Eddie probably would have went on to just claim all of France for Britain, just fubar. The rest of their military with that longbow had it not been for the Black Death. There's so many twists and turns in these stories, right? Black Death needs to be a future suck. So the English, they're kicking the shit out of the French early on, you know, with their longbows. And then the plague hits Britain in the mid-14th century. Hits them hard. Hits them hard enough to stop their war effort. In 1348, the bubonic plague struck England and killed nearly a third of the nation's entire population. That's a lot. Just uh, fucking everybody is either sick or dying, sick and dying, or tending to the sick and dying. It was just hell on earth. All military operations are halted for nearly a decade as they shift focus uh, to, I'm guessing, mostly burial. A lot of funerals, a lot of black fabric being made. Coffin makers making some serious coin, getting rich on that coffin money. Great days for the coffin trade. Strong times for funeral homes, uh, but all military progress for the English is lost. Meanwhile, over in France, King Philip dies. Phil fucking, you know, Phil just being Phil. You know, he starts some shit and then he dies. That's so Phil. He dies in 1350. And his son, John II, takes the throne, but then is captured by the British in 1356. John's son, Charles, gives England a bunch of territories and a lot of money to free his father in 1360. Signs the Treaty of uh, Britanniae with King Edward, renouncing his claim to the French throne in exchange for full sovereignty over his captured lands in France advantage england once again but then king john ii of france dies in uh, 1364 and his son charles now charles v decides you know on second thought i didn't want to sign that treaty he thinks uh you know what i fucking now that i think about it i fucking hate that treaty instead of honoring it how about the english how about you guys go fuck yourselves and he goes back on the treaty and he wages war in england once again and basically it just keeps going on like this constant fighting Back and forth for over 100 years between Britain and France. The war would last until 1453 when King Charles Seventh of France, the man Joan, uh, helped greatly in, in, in the battle against the English. Finally kicked the English out of France for good. Uh, and, you know, and then the English would quickly uh, redirect their ass kicking energy towards the new world across the Atlantic. Uh, quick note, technically for you, for you files his- who really know this stuff. Technically, not all of the English left France. Like 99.9%. They would retain the small port city of Calais, closest city to England uh, in mainland France there, uh, until relinquishing even that city in 1558. So, you know, I guess France just felt it wasn't worth the trouble to sack back in 1453. So now we've set up the backstory for Joan of Arc's fight for French independence from England. Don't, don't, you're not going to be graded on this again. You know, I know there's a lot of names bouncing around, but I just wanted to establish, you know, that for many years prior to Joan's birth, there was just a lot of fighting between France and England, and then the fr- fighting revolved around claims to the throne. And they're, you know, they're making treaties, they're doing this, they're doing that. They're like, okay, you can have this land if you leave us alone here. And then the next guy comes along, nope, uh, uh-uh. uh get the fuck out of there. Now we, now we don't want, want to believe that. And then that guy dies, and another guy, you know, on the other side, like, actually, I should be the king now. And you know, he just keeps going and keeps going. Okay, so we basically already had a little time slick timeline, but now let's officially jump into one. Uh, let's jump into the timeline. Of the life of Joan of Arc Strap on those boots soldier We're marching down a time suck timeline January 6th 1412 Joan Alexander Robert Bobbert Von Twinkletoes Arc is born in Don Remy About 150 miles east of Paris and, of course, I made up those middle names. Her, her, her name was Joan, Joan de Arc. Uh, her little village had less than 200 people in it. And I'm guessing zero cool clubs. Probably not a public pool. Uh, no movie theaters. No arcades. So, you know, it fucking sucked. Uh, no thanks. Uh, France had been involved in that damn 100-year war. Uh, we were talking about for about 75 years already, the time of her birth. Her parents, you know, because, again, it's that misnomer. It actually lasted for longer than 100 years. Uh, her parents were uh, Jacques de Arc and Isabelle Romay. And for small-town peasant folk, they did well for themselves. Joan's father owned 40 acres over which he rotated his crops, pastured his sheep, and another 10 acres in the Bois Chenoux. Uh, It is documented that Jacques uh, and Isabelle were good Christians, good farmers, nice people. They lived in the only house in the village that was built of stone, not wood and thatch, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, uh, And the family home, very cool, is still standing today. It's uh, listed as a historic monument as of 1840. Joan of Arc's birthplace has been preserved, restored. On the front is a, a carved little, uh, uh, it's like a tim, how do you say it? Uh, t- uh, tympanum, uh, tympanum? I think a tympanum. It's not a very rarely used word. It's like a little recessed cutout in the in, the, in, the, in a wall uh, where you can put like a little statue. And there's a little thing of bearing it. It's like a 15th century coat of arms, little statue of Joan in there, kneeling in her suit of armor. Uh, inside, visitors uh, see four rooms, the bedroom when she was born, her, bed, her bedroom, uh, the cellar, her brother's uh, bedroom, the town had been renamed uh, Don Rémy uh, Lapiselle uh, after Joan's nickname, La de Orleans, uh, the Virgin of Orleans. Orleans, Orleans. Uh, Joan had four siblings, uh, Jacquemaine, uh, Jean, Catherine, and Pierre. Jean and Pierre would later follow their little sister into battle, while Jacquemaine uh, stayed to help his parents with the farm. So so typical uh, of Jacquemaine. Of course, Jacquemaine would stay behind. You know, but, John, I have to help mom Paul with the farm. They'll be fine, Jacques No, they won't, John. They need me. They say you actually slow them down, Jacques But who will pick the carrots, John? Who? You know I pick the best carrots. I always have. Yes, father will handle the radishes and the turnips and the green onions. And mother will harvest the cabbage and the spinach. But who, who will pick the carrots, John? Who picks the carrots if not Jacques Jesus Christ, fine, stay home and pick the carrots, Jacques so, so you could have said you were afraid to fight. You didn't need to get so weird about the carrots. No one picks the carrots like Jacques Romain, I think that was somewhere in between Spanish and French. I tried to get into it by selling with my, my arms. You can't see it, but I was fucking going, pumping my arms, really getting into those voices. Joan had a pretty typical childhood. Uh, she spent it under her mother's tutelage. She learned the domestic skills expected of a woman, an apprenticeship. It uh, began as soon as the girl was able to fetch and carry. When later asked if she had learned any craft in her youth, Joan said that she had indeed boasting that in sewing and spinning, I fear no woman. As to the importance of those and uh, all other womanly duties, she would also later add uh, there were enough other women to do them. So she wasn't interested in doing the womanly things. She could. She was good, but she didn't care about it. Summer of 1495, when Joan was 13, she received what she described as a voice from God to help and guide me. The voice came at midday when Joan was in her father's garden adjacent to the parish cemetery. Uh, The voice came from over her right shoulder, was accompanied by a green light, saying, Joan of Arc, you have the ability to overcome great fear. Welcome to the Green Lantern Corps. Bet you didn't know Joan of Arc was once the Green Green Lantern, did you? Probably because it's not true. Would have been nice. Would have helped her uh, not get burnt if she could have used her, you know, Green Lantern power ring to form like a big green fire extinguisher, you know, put her fire out. Maybe uh, maybe a, a big green fucking hammer to smash her persecutors. Uh, you know, and if this was going to happen to a 13-year-old kid, it was going to happen to one like Joan. She was a deeply religious child who would go down on her knees every time she heard the church bell toll. As so one quote. Often slipped away to speak with God uh, before this happened. And then the uh, the Count of uh, uh, Dinoy, uh who would become one of Joan's closest comrades-in-arms, remarked that even at the frantic height of her military career, it was her habit every day at Vespa time or at dusk, to retire into a church and have the bells rung for almost half an hour. Watching her pray, Danois saw a woman seized with a marvelous rapture. So she was very, very, very religious. She was, uh, she was one of those, uh, one of the many words, you know, that gives me a lot of trouble. She was uh, pious, not, not pious, as I believe I've said in, in the past occasionally. Uh, Joan would later say that the voice she heard that day was Saint Michael, who while sometimes referred to as a saint, is not a saint, but rather an angel, an archangel, uh, the leader of all angels and and uh, the leader of the army of God according to Christian tradition Saint Michael has four main responsibilities uh, the first is to combat Satan the second is to escort the faithful to heaven at their hour of death the third is to be champion of all Christians and the church itself and the fourth is to call men from life on earth to their heavenly judgment so she uh, she went big you know she spoke to Saint Michael top angel she didn't uh, she didn't waste her time Speaking to some bullshit bottom shelf angel, like, uh, you know, like a, like a St. Willard. You know, I don't know if you know about St. Willard. St. Willard is a lower level angel who also has four responsibilities that are not as important. Uh, number one, uh, first is to combat minor, easily defeatable demons. And even then, only when no other better at fighting angels are nearby and available. The second is to monitor non-believers from a distance during inconsequential points in their existences. The third is to be a really big fan of Christians when surrounded by other more powerful angels. At other times, totally okay for St. Willard uh, to denounce religion, to denounce Christianity when social circumstances dictate that to do otherwise may create an awkward moment. And the fourth uh, responsibility of St. Willard is to call men from life on earth to ask them how they're doing and then to quickly hang up if the conversation gets too heated or emotional. Uh, No, but for real, she thought she was speaking directly to the archangel Michael. And she didn't tell anyone about her visions at the time. The voices uh, uh, asked simple questions about church, about being a good girl. Uh, a lot of virgin questions. I'm not making that up. A lot of questions, you know, was she still a virgin? Was she planning on staying a virgin? Are you sure you didn't dampen Dominic's dingle behind the apothecary last Saturday night? Seriously, a lot of uh, virgin talk. Uh, what if the voice was not an angel but actually her brother? Just Jacques You know, like uh, like for real. I convinced my sister Donna that I was God when I was a kid. Like, I think it was like junior high, maybe sixth grade. Uh, seriously, I would sneak up onto the roof when she played outside with her toys. <laughs> I would watch her. I would look down on her and just gonna kind of hide out of sight. And, uh, and I would change my voice and, and speak as if I was going to be like, Donna, be righteous in all your ways, Donna. Cherish your family, Donna, especially your brother, Daniel. He is destined for greatness. I don't actually remember exactly what I said. But I do know family lore is that I had her convinced for a while that, that God was talking to her. That would be pretty funny if Joan uh, joined the French war effort, like turning the tides in favor of France from from which the English would never recover, all because Jacquemain, her pervert brother, was fucking with her, asking her about her virginity and stuff. Highly doubtful, but fun to imagine. And this voice spoke to Joan for years, so it's very, very likely that, uh, in my opinion, that blatant mental illness sent Joan into battle and turned the tides of war, which is also pretty damn amazing. Uh, what a, what a, uh, you know, fortunate <laughs> thing, what a fortunate mental illness for her to suffer, uh, you know, for France in general, like it really helped France out a lot by 1427, the voices in Joan's head were no longer speaking to her about her virginity. Uh, now they kind of shifted focus they're talking about battle. She becomes convinced that she was chosen. Uh, she was the chosen one to save France. Uh, as she said in her words, there is no one else on earth, be he King or Duke or the King of Scotland's daughter or anyone else. Who can restore the kingdom of France? So she was very convinced in her mission, uh, and and why would anyone entertain this peasant girl into thinking she could save France? Why would anyone even listen to her? Uh, well, because of some prior prophecies, right? This is the age uh, when prophecies were taken a lot more seriously uh, than they are now. You know, uh, there, there were a number of prophecies circulating around the country at that time that claimed that a woman uh, or a virginal woman would be the savior of France. One, long before the start of the Hundred Years' War, was pre-Christian. It was attributed to the mythical Arthurian wizard Merlin, who prophesied that a marvelous maid would come from the Bois Chazun, uh, the ancient wood, to save France. Uh, fuck yeah, man. Finally, a wizard shows up in one of these tales. A cleric known as Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth wrote about a legendary King Arthur in the early 12th century and included in King Arthur's court was a wizard, Merlin. And Merlin wrote a book of prophecies that uh, Geoffrey supposedly found, or, or Geoffrey. Might have been Geoffrey of Monmouth. G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. It's too many fucking, th- this, this time suck. I must have looked up a hundred pronunciations. Fucking crazy. King King Arthur, legendary British leader, who according to medieval histories and romances, led the defense of Britain against Saxon invaders in the late 5th and 6th centuries CE. Many, if not most, historians doubt a real King Arthur ever actually existed. A legend in folklore You know, just a majestic king, noble knights, wizards, witches. So that's pretty cool. You know, in a time long before the web, long before even a printing press, when the written word was scarce, when people wrote with quills and ink bottles, when no one had yet sailed across the Pacific or at least done so and spread the word, the world was truly magical. There was no Google Earth to map the dark forests. Right? Think about how many people live and believe in cryptozoology now in the age of high-power digital cameras and video recorders in every purse and pocket. Imagine what life was like. Before, most of the world was even mapped at all. Dragons and sea serpents, the prophecies of long-dead wizards, it must have seemed so real, especially to an imaginative and passionate young girl who was deeply pious. Another common prophecy of the day, of Joan's day, was a, was a more modern one. It was a response to a supposedly scandalous behavior that the wife of the king, Charles VI, Isabeau of Bavaria, uh, Bavaria, mother of the man Joan, would fight to make the king. Charles VII, the eldest son of the king of France, when Joan was a child, uh, had supposedly uh, engaged in. The prophecies was that a, a virgin would save France after a fallen woman had shamed it because Isabel was caught supposedly having an affair, and, uh, and then many questioned the paternity of her son Charles, and then, you know of course, questioning his legitimacy to the throne. Isabel was one of many complicated, uh, complicated characters during that Hundred Years' War. Uh, her husband, Charles VI, suffered from some sort of mental illness that resulted in him taking long absences and running from the, gov- uh, running the government. She was allowed to rule in his place. You know, his illness created a power vacuum that would eventually lead to the Burgundians shifting their allegiance to England. Uh, it would also lead to Isabeau attending the 1420 signing of the Treaty of Troyes, uh, which decided that the English king, Henry V, should inherit the French crown after the death of her husband, Charles VI. She lived in English-occupied Paris. Uh, Paris until her death in 1435, and then the, the English, you know, were again making military progress in the early part of the 15th century. So much back and forth, man. Fucking crazy. Think about those days, too, when, you know, like, your leader could be blatantly mentally ill, but you don't get to have a new leader. You still got to wait until they die. I mean, <laughs> and I know, I'm, I'm sure some of you are making some Trump jokes to yourself right now, because I, I don't want to I try not to get political here. I'm not going to say where my my feelings lie, but I know I know a fair amount of the country uh, is not uh, terribly confident in his mental faculties. But 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 he's not—he's <laughs> not, in my opinion, well, uh, blatantly mentally ill. Like like, what if somebody truly was? Like, what if a was like obviously like schizophrenic? Like going into a press conference and just fucking flying off the handle in like a two-hour rant, like like a David Icke style rant about lizards, and everybody's like, "What the fuck?" But you can't get rid of them. You're gonna have you just that you're stuck with that person for decades if that's how long it takes for them to die or for somebody to kill them. What a weird time to live in, um, yeah. To live in northern France around Jonestown time must have been terrible. It seemed like every few years someone else is in charge. of You. It reminds me of our exploration of, of Vlad the Impaler's Wallachia. You know, also in the 15th century, uh, constantly going back and forth between Christian and Muslim forces. Remember that from that suck. Uh, main takeaway is just don't don't ever live in 15th century Europe. Don't do it. If you get the chance to go back there, don't, don't do not it. It's fucking terrible. Uh, on May 13th, 1428, Joan's father, Jacques, is summoned to uh, Vucola, some 12 miles or, or 20 miles north of uh, Don Remy, uh, to meet with the town's captain, Robert de uh, uh, Baudricourt, uh, about the escalating tensions between the warring factions. Now, this area is roughly 300 kilometers, 186 miles east of Paris. So, uh, while the war with England was never all that far away, the area that Joan specifically lived in uh, had been, you know, under French control consistently. Joan was informed by her angels that she must accompany her father and, of course, not bang any bros along the way. Very concerned with her virginity was this angel. Uh, very concerned with her virginity was Joan, as we'll find out. Uh, one misplaced dick could have ruined the whole prophecy, destroyed the entire revolution. And speaking of dick, let's check in with another one of today's sponsors. Uh, Today's Time Suck also brought to you by Mama Ridgeway's Clean Ween. Clean Ween is a special soap bar with a hole in the middle. So you can put an antibacterial pine-scented polish on that pristine penis of yours. Mama Ridgeway's Clean Ween soap bars really wet your whistle as you work to get that ween clean enough to slide it on through. Fuck that soap. Literally. Literally, fuck it. That's how clean Wing works. Tiny, invisible, cleanliness crystals within clean wean break down as you push your penis back and forth, limp or hard, through the soap hole, squeezing and cleaning your wing, just like Mama Ridgway would do if she could get her actual hands on it. Order now. Get a free taint and scrote sponge to get your whole undercarriage shiny and sparkling, from butt crack to cock and balls. Head to upsetting. enter the discount code TIMESUCK, and then pray that Lucifina Gives you back your sanity because you're in a real dark place right now. You're in a real dark place if you're actually trying to order some clean wing. Poor new listener. You must be so confused right now. Time suck is a weird world that just keeps getting weirder. Stay along for the ride long enough, and these strange moments will make at least a little bit of sense. I promise. Okay. May 1428. We're back. Joan's father heads a bit north to talk about the war with uh, Captain Robert de Baudicourt. Now, a war that is possibly coming to his part of the countryside, and his daughter, Joan, accompanies him. 16-year-old Joan felt that she needed to see the Dauphin of France, the male heir to the throne. She needed to see Charles because she strongly felt that she would be the key to winning the war for France. Before she left, she visited a hilltop shrine two miles north of Don Remy that was consecrated to the Virgin Mary. And then Joan said that the Virgin appeared in front of me carrying a sword and a flag, but dressed in every other way like a shepherdess. And when Joan protests to the Virgin Mary that she has no abilities as a warrior, the Holy Mother tells her that a virgin without stain can accomplish all the good deeds in the world if she withstands the love that's of the world. Only look at me. I was like you, a chaste maid, yet I gave birth to the Lord, the Lord divine. I myself am divine. Again, so much virgin stuff. Who knew that an intact hymen is what you need to win a war? Here I thought you had to be better at fighting, like a fool. I've believed that. What have we been doing in this country, sending our young, sex-having men into battle? It's fucking idiot. That's stupid. We need to be sending in our tweens, right? Send our tweens into battle, at least the girls. Send some virginal girls over to Afghanistan, North Korea, more hymens, less bullets. Why isn't that an extremely confusing bumper sticker? Uh, inspired by the mother Mary's words, Joan accompanies her father, informing him that the voices (laughs) have told her that she needs to talk to Sir Robert. I'm sure he was fucking thrilled, uh, to hear that and to bring his crazy ass daughter to the local town's captain. Uh, Sir Robert, as Joan knew, had access to the Dauphin. According to, (laughs) according to her voices, he would give me men at arms to accompany her, uh, west from the little pocket of resistance represented, uh, um. Yeah, by the way, uh, Joan explains her commands. I don't know what she meant by that. <laughs> That's just the quote. She, he would give me men at arms to accompany her west from the little pocket of resistance represented. Uh, Joan explains her commands to Sir Robert, and it doesn't go as well as she had hoped. Instead of something along the lines of voices have been telling you, a young girl with zero military training, that I should let you lead actual soldiers into battle against England? Huh, sounds good. How many do you need? Would you like to have my horse as well? Maybe borrow my sword? Anything you need? No, he didn't do that. He had a good laugh at her expense. And he tells her dad that she needs a good slapping because he was, you know, probably more sane than she was. <laughs> uh, and then in December of 1428, Joan's aunt gets pregnant. So, you know, no fighting for her non-hymen having ass. And then Joan heads to uh, Vaculay uh, with the excuse that she needs to help her aunt. Yolanda of Aragon, the Dauphin's mother-in-law, hears that there is a 17-year-old girl in Vacula claiming to be sent by God to guide Charles to the throne. And uh, instead of laughing it off, she likes it. She was a superstitious woman, and, you know, she had been hearing about those prophecies. And uh, she, you know, she she knew that, uh, she knew that France needed a morale bo- boost to help win this uh, Hundred Years' War. So she dispatches her messenger from the court at Chinon uh, to that of her son and Rene, uh, the future Duke of Bar and Lorraine, and Bauducourt's immediate overlord, Sir Robert, the town's captain, who had been laughing off Joan's visions of grandeur, uh, Yolande wrote to Rene, was on no account to squash or banish this peasant girl, not when his country— Needed the energy and confidence inspired by a prophecy fulfilled. So smart lady, I feel like she recognizes that, you know, maybe Joan is batshit crazy, but still going to be a good morale boost for the French side. So uh, Sir Robert is instructed to have the girl evaluated and uh, her words be, to be taken uh, seriously. Joan shows up in Vaucoula wearing a rough homespun dress that she knew wasn't right for fighting. And then she was given her, her first set of men's clothing. And she would never uh, go back to willingly wearing women's clothing again. She would not go back to wearing a woman's outfit. And according to historical sources, not only did she wear men's clothing all of a sudden, she got really into men's fashion. She became known as a fop or a dandy, someone very into men's fashion. Uh, This one excerpt from a historical excerpt says, uh, The tailor-made clothes the citizens of Vakula gave her awoke a taste for the luxurious fabrics and flamboyant styles normally held out of a peasant's reach. Velvet surcoats embroidered with gold thread, fur lined mantles, colorful tunics bearing coats of arms, tight fitting damask doublets with jeweled buttons and slashed sleeves that revealed contrasting silk linings, brightly colored hose, voluminous, uh, voluminous gowns with sleeves that hung to the ground, pigasses with their extravagantly long and pointed toes, belts hung with bells and trinkets, an infinity of hats, all kinds of shit. So why did she get into dressing like a man? Well, she she would claim later that God told her to. Now, is that the truth? We have no reason to believe that she didn't believe that. However, a lot of historians, authors, scholars, others have speculated that she may have been lesbian, perhaps a transvestite, perhaps transgender, etc. Most believe that she dressed as she did because she thought God told her to dress that way. You know, she's hearing these voices telling her to do stuff. These various agents of God telling her to fight for France, be a virgin, put on some fucking pants, take off your dress, that kind of stuff. Around this time, uh, Joan also cuts off her long hair, cuts her hair short. She took this idea from St. Margaret, a 13th century Italian woman, recently made a saint who had cut her hair off to make herself less sexually desirable and less prone to sin. Again, going back to chastity, guys, big thing, big thing. You know, apparently keeping your legs closed as a woman was just the most important thing you could do. The haircut also showed a status change, telling potential suitors she was no longer a girl available for marriage. Long hair, uncovered hair, was a sign that a girl was available to be wed. So maybe she dressed up like a man, also partly to guard her virginity that she that she held so precious. Right? She's doing everything she can to send uh, that message of "do not fuck me." Uh, in February of fourteen twenty nine, Joan meets with the Duke of Lorraine, who will help with her journey to meet the Dauphin. She's finally going to meet Charles. Gives her a horse, four francs, and another ally. Training into how to become a soldier. Uh, to master a knight's necessary skills, ordinarily acquired over years, Joan is trained for four weeks at Vacula, and then will be granted an additional three at Poitiers. Uh, uh, when not being interrogated by the clerics assembled there to assess her claim of divine vocation. She learned to ride a war horse. I guess she learned to ride it faster than anyone believed was possible. So she did have some skills. You know, she wasn't just uh, cray-cray. She had some real skills. February 22nd. 1429, she at last sets out for uh, Chinon uh, with six men. The traveling party of seven included the two knights who financed her trip. Jean de Metz, uh, Bertrand de uh, Poulenier, Bertrand's uh, servant, Julian, Yolande's messenger, uh, Collet de Vienne, Richard the Archer. There's a fucking name I can say. Richard the Archer. Fucking nailed it. Dick the Bow Slinger. Dick the Arrow Slinger. And, uh, and the servant he shared with Vienne, uh, Jean de uh, Hondecourt, uh, They were all knights and servants of Sir Robert de Baudricourt, Joan testified. Sir Robert, the man who first laughed at Joan's visions, now sworn to protect her on a journey. Uh, on February 21st, the seven travelers paused at the village of St. Catherine de Fourbois, a day's ride from Chinon. They had made it that far without incident, uh, and I guess that was a miracle on its own. And, and Joan kept herself busy dictating letters to the king-to-be. Uh, saying, I sent letters to my king telling him I had traveled a good 150 leagues to come to his aid. And I told him also that I knew many things to his advantage. His court was divided on whether or not to receive Joan. She did get a response back uh, in two days. Oh, she did not get a response back until for, it took her two days to get one. There we go. Uh, and by the way, I said she dictated letters because she, she was illiterate, but she was uh, very well-spoken, as you can tell by the what she had said in the letters. So she's, you know, not educated, but very intelligent. March 4th, 1429, Joan reaches Chinon in the middle of the day and says, uh, But when Jean de Metz and Bertrand de Pouligny were admitted to the Dauphin's chambers upstairs, they discovered that Charles wasn't expecting the arrival of the maid from Lorraine. La Tremois had intercepted the letters and destroyed them. So somebody in his court got the letters she'd been sending fucking tossed them out. March 6th, the scene in which Joan at last meets the Dauphin claims a prominent role in every telling of Joan's story Uh, identifying her immediate discovery of the Dauphin who had hidden himself among a crowd of courtiers uh, as her first significant miracle, the one that ignited the fuse of her messianic trajectory. After all, she'd never seen him before, never seen his likeness. You know, Uh, what other than the voices in her head could have tipped her off? She walks right over to Charles, drops on her knees and says, Most noble Lord Dauphin, I have come and am sent by God to bring help to you and your kingdom. Charles is impressed, takes Joan into a private chat. And uh, and tells him a secret that basically this is part of the legend too. Tells him something that uh, that nobody could have known, something only he knew. Some some you know like closely guarded secret of his. This this rural peasant girl knew exactly what it was, and it was not disclosed until the end of Charles' life what Joan had said to him to convince him that she was real. And I guess uh, Charles had made a, a humble silent request in prayer to our Lord, in which he begged him devoutly that if uh, it were true that he was you know the heir to the throne of France. Might it please God to protect and defend him? Otherwise, he asked God to allow him to escape to the court of one of his allies in either Spain or Scotland. And and Joan knew he had made that prayer, knew it in detail, enough detail to convince the Dauphin of her legitimacy. So, uh, you know, how how could she have known that? Pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, Again, I throw out there like, you know, I say mental illness. But, you know, if you're uh, of the religious bent, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, the faithful believe that she was touched by God. That's the only way she could have known by that stuff or known that kind of stuff. Um, still he was slow in his actions to allow her to fight which frustrated Joan uh, but he did allow her to follow her voices, listen to him although she had convinced Charles of her legitimacy she was still examined by two women of the court still to make sure she's a virgin prophecy doesn't work if uh, you know she had been scratching that deep vaginal itch nope, nope she hadn't hymen is still intact which I, which I guess is pretty unusual due to the fact that she'd been riding a horse through rough conditions for several weeks which is a good way to get rid of your hymen that's actually how I lost my hymen uh, rough horseback riding, specifically, is how I lost my penis hymen. Uh, I used to have the rare penis hymen reserved for only the most magnificent of men. It's a little tiny hymen that covers the end of your wing so that others who see it can tell that it's still clean and you're still a virgin. But alas, you know, one rough ride and uh, off it went, which wasn't all that bad because at the age of 16, I could finally now start peeing out the front and, and I didn't have to pee out of my butt again. Because that's when you do have a penis hymen, it covers your pee hole. So you can't pee. You're, that's how clean your ween is. Now, it's not used for sex, not used for peeing. You butt pee for the first, you know, however many years of your life until you, until you drop that, that, that weenie hymen. Anywho, uh, March 11th through 12, 1429, Joan is sent to Poitiers to meet with the religious tribunal. She will be examined by still more theologians to determine her intentions before she's allowed to proceed. Elaine uh, Chartier, a political commentator as well as a poet, stressed Joan's unusual intellectual capacities she appeared to have studied at, at a university rather than cared for sheep in the fields based on her intellect and uh, yeah and they're 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 very impressed on March 27th 1429 Joan is officially presented to the wider court and i guess no princess in all of europe had ever made such a memorable debut the the count of uh, vendome uh, one of yolande's uh, retinue escorted joan into the grand salle on the upper floor of fucking some other crazy fucking Bunch of French words. I'm so sick of these fucking French words. It's like she had to have gone to every fucking French village in all of goddamn France. And it's like, fuck these words. Once, <laughs> once the staring hush crowd had parted enough to allow Joan and the count to make their way to the throne. The count presented to her a man seated on the throne who was not Charles. They're trying to trick her again, even after she knew his secret. They're still on the fence, I guess. They want to put her through more tests. Before Joan's entrance, Charles had explained the ruse to all present. It was a means of testing the counsel of Joan's voices. He would uh, he would change clothes with one of his courtiers who, who would take Charles place on the dais on the Dauphin hit amongst the crowd Joan was not fooled for a moment by the impostor she uh, she wasn't she wasn't walking over to fake Charles she went over to found the real Charles immediately recognized him perfectly and I guess uh, Yolanda was pleased with how well the court took to uh, Joan finding Charles I gotta say man if all these historical accounts are true and I have no reason to doubt them I too would have gotten caught up by her divine inspiration right they're trying to trick her at every turn. Yeah, they're making her meet with all these theological courts, and she just keeps amazing everyone. And this uh, next parlor trick is, uh, is especially impressive. April 6, 1429, a week after her presentation to the court at Chinon, uh, Joan arrives and tours about five miles northwest of Chinon, equipped for battle, armed as quickly as possible. Her armor did not have much decoration but was uh, you know incredible quality. I guess it was pretty expensive. A little display of angels adorned her battle standard, that little battle flag she would wave to rally the troops behind her. And while in tours, Joan sent word that she needed a sword. This is the little parlor trick I was talking about. Said that she needed a sword that was in the church of St. Catherine de Fourbois behind the altar. She'd known its location. She told the examiner, not because she discovered it herself during the hour she spent in the church, but because she had learned of it through her voices months after she had left uh, St. Catherine de Fourbois. And immediately it was found, rusted all over. It was in in the ground, like buried in the ground, rusted over. Upon it were five crosses, and that sword was cleaned up and presented to Joan. How about that shit? I mean, I guess she could have heard, you know, or overheard someone talking about it, but still impressive. And if people were talking about it, why wouldn't they have just digged it up? Pretty impressive that she knew that some old sword was buried there. Uh, Joan would end up having five swords, but never actually used one in battle. She led the troops in charges, guided assaults, you know, strategically, but never actually ran her sword through the enemy. There's only only one record of her using a sword. Uh, Jean, Duke of uh, Alençon, uh, watched her once chase a girl. This is a quote. Chase a girl who was with the soldiers so hard with her sword drawn that she broke her sword over the prostitute's back. A significant blow as a battle sword typical of its time was a large weapon intended to be used with both hands and weighing as much as 10 pounds. That's a historical quote, not from, not from Jean. Uh, man, she was really into chastity, right? Didn't even like when other people were having too much sex. She was clearly not being guided or watched over by Lucifina. Lucifina would not be into Joan's rigid sexual attitude. On April 21st, 1429, Joan and her army set out for uh, blah. I believe a blah is how you say it, 30 miles to the northeast. When Joan arrives, she has uh, Pascaral send a letter to the English armies. Joan was never formally taught to read or to write, but she could clearly, again, dictate the fuck out of a letter. Uh, Here's a letter she sent to the English armies. Before her first battle against him, she was not messing around. She said, King of England and you, Duke of Bedford, who you call yourself regent of the kingdom of France, you, William Pole, Count of Suffolk, John Talbot, and you, Thomas Lord Scales, who call yourselves lieutenants of the said Duke of Bedford, make satisfaction to the king of heaven. Surrender to the maid who is sent here by God, the king of heaven, the keys of all the good towns which you have taken and violated in France. She has come here by God's will to reclaim the blood royal. She is very ready to make peace if you are willing to grant her satisfaction by abandoning France and paying from what you have for what you have held. And you, archers, men at war, gentlemen and others, who are before the town of uh, Orléans or Orleans, go away in your own country in God's name. And if you do not do so, expect tidings from the maid who will come to see you shortly to your very great harm. King of England, if you, had, if you do not do so, I am a chieftain of war. And in whatever place I meet your people in France, I shall make them leave. And in whether they will it or not. And if they will not obey, I will have them all put to death. I am sent here by God. She wants to remind him that. The king of heaven, body for body, to drive you out of all of France. And if they wish to obey, I will show them mercy. And be not of another opinion. For you will not hold the kingdom of France from God, the king of heaven. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. She's fucking wordy. I'm not going to read any more of her letter. It's fucking enough. I get it. I get it, Joan. All right. We fucking heard you the first 10 fucking times you talked about being sent here by God. She even <laughs> she even ends the letter. Uh, uh, God's anointed, his Messiah, La Pucelle. Ha, ah, okay. So basically, she sends him a little get the fuck out or get killed warning. They were real wordy back then, weren't they? Right? Man, it's just, and I, I am Joan of Orleans, sent here by God, holy of holiest, the angel of the angels, Lord in heaven. Just shut the fuck up. and Get to the point already, Joan. Uh, what are you getting paid by the word? It's a fucking letter. Just send him a note. Just saying something like, hey, guys, fucking get out of our country or I'm going to cut your fucking heads off. All right? You don't have to write three goddamn books to get that point across. You're going to face the wrath of Jones war hymen. April 29th, 1429, Joan, wordied lady, arrives in Orleans. I'm going to say Orleans from now on. I was trying to say it in the French way earlier. Fuck that. It's Orleans to me. A city that had been under siege by the English since October of 1428. Joan had approached Orleans under the assumption that she was uh, Orleans. There we go. I'm going to say Orleans. All right. That's right. I'll settle on that. Leading an army, intended to drive off the English. But really, she was, uh, she was actually sent by Charles as kind of a cheerleader to boost morale. Uh, of the French inhabitants in hopes of inspiring them to revolt. She didn't know that. Uh, Charles wanted to test uh, how the people responded to her, you know, before he really, like, put her in charge of uh, actual military action. I guess she was pissed off about being misled. She would say, you thought you had deceived me. Uh, she said this to one of the captains who kind of sidelined her and wouldn't allow her to really lead troops initially. But it is you who have deceived yourselves, for I am bringing you better help than ever you got from any soldier or any city. And she didn't lack confidence. Did not lack confidence. In her. This is a teenager. Can you imagine what they must have, so many must have thought of her initially? This is what? She's like uh, 16 at this at this time? 16, maybe 17? And these are all grown, battle-hardened men. And she's like, never before has a soldier such as I been here, been sent here to guide France. No one is as powerful as Joan. Virgin of, vir- my hymen alone could take out 20,000 British soldiers. Um... So anyway, uh, same day, a French sortie distracts the English troops on the west side of Orleans uh, Orleans and Joan enters the city uh, unopposed by its eastern gate. She, she brings in uh, needed supplies, reinforcements, and she does inspire the French, man. They do rally around her uh, to form a passionate resistance against the English. And on Tuesday, May 3rd, the people of Orleans, uh, Orleans fuck, uh, held a formal citywide procession in her honor, presented money and gifts to the maid and her companions, asked them to deliver their town from its siege. Now Joan's captain, seeing the effect she does have on the town's morale, now they allow her to fight for real, and she does personally lead the charge in several battles. And on May 7th, is actually struck by an arrow, which uh, she quickly dresses her wound, returns to the fight, and the French do win the day. And then the following day, on May 8th, the English retreat from Orleans, and, and the siege is lifted. And during the siege, 140 Englishmen have been killed. In a few days of fighting, another 40 taken prisoner. Only a handful of French lives are lost. This is a major victory for the French. Man, the city had held uh, strategic and symbolic significance to both sides during this conflict. The consensus among contemporaries was that the English regent, John of Lancaster, would have succeeded in realizing Henry V's dream of conquering all of France if uh, Orleans fell. So it does not. They push him back. uh, Huge Turning of the tides here. The Dauphin sent out a notice dated May 10th, 1429, calling upon all citizens of France to give thanks to God for the great victory at Orleans that had been accomplished by captains who, through their great prowess and courage in arms and always by means of the grace of our Lord, captured the whole of this fortress. The victory does turn the tides of war back towards the French. Victory over the English feels more possible now. Suddenly now, men are coming out of the woodwork. They're volunteering to fight for Joan and France. On May 13th, Joan leaves for Tours where she uh, uh meets the Dauphin to extract to get some money, uh get some supplies to replenish her forces. Then on uh, June 11th and 12th, Joan and her army take uh, Giorgio through heavy battle. This is Joan's first offensive battle and first uh, victory that way. You know, a town that's not being um uh siege being laid upon it. She's actually taking the attack to the English now. Uh Giorgio was a small town on the southern bank of the uh, Loire River in central France, about 10 miles east of Orléans. Uh, Orleans, uh, conquered by the uh, English a few years earlier, as a staging point for a planned invasion of southern France. The city was defended by a wall, several towers, fortified gates. A ditch just outside of the walls further enhances the defenses. Outside of the walls, there's little, you know, some suburbs, some people living out there. single fortified bridge uh, of strategic significance during the latter part of the war is crossing the lower river to the north bank. And the city is defended by approximately 700 troops armed with gunpowder weaponry. The battle begins with the French assault in the suburbs. English defenders leave the city walls, and the French fall back. Joan of Arc uses her uh, her standard, waving her flag, to begin a French rally. The English retreat to the city walls. Now the French uh, you know spend the night in the suburbs, and then the following morning she calls upon the defenders uh, to surrender. They refuse. The French follow with heavy artillery bombardment using primitive cannons and siege engines. One of the town's towers falls to the ground. Joan initiates an assault on the town walls. Uh, that she herself, you know, engaged in. She actually survived some asshole throwing a stone down on her as she's climbing up on a ladder to scale the wall. It actually hits her in the head. Uh, splits in two, is the legend, against her helmet. But she keeps climbing, doesn't even knock her off the fucking ladder, and the English suffer heavy losses and abandon the town. Pretty dope. Her legend grows with this victory. Joan and her force on uh, on June 15th, her force of about six 7,000, then take a bridge from the English at uh, Mans sur loire uh, And then on the 16th, Joan and her army moved to uh, Bougency, a small town of good strategic value on the northern bank of the Loire River. In central France, the English control virtually everything north of the Loire at this time, and uh, and taking this town would begin to push uh, into the north. Sorry if I'm pronouncing uh, Loire wrong. I probably am. I-, I did not get a pronunciation guide for that one. Uh, another 1,000 troops join her fight. During the first day of fighting, the English abandon the town, retreat into the castle. The French bombard the castle with artillery fire, and the English surrender. On June 18th, the French fight the English in nearby Pataille's route. The English lose over 2,000 men out of a force of about 5,000, many of them uh, being uh, precious longbow archers. And the French lose only about 100 men. After the battle, the French pursue a fleeing English army, inflict more damage. Huge victory for the French. Uh, the virtual destruction of the English field army, the loss of many of their principal veteran commanders has devastated uh, the English, You know, devastating consequences for their position in France and uh, from which they would never recover for the rest of this war. During the following weeks, the French, facing negligible uh, resistance, are able to swiftly regain big swaths of territory to the south, east, and north of Paris. Uh, and, to, and they march to the Reims, where the Dauphin was crowned King Charles VII on, Ju- on July 17th. Uh, which can be a little confusing because he was, he was he was kind of really already the king of France. You know, his father had died in 1422, but his father had willed France to the English, kind of. Remember, he was mentally ill, and, and his wife had done that on his behalf, but then Charles didn't want to honor. They felt like this was signed during duress. Uh, neither did some of his supporters. So, so really, while the English under Henry VI took over more and more of northern France, uh, you know, he, he had, you know, prior to this, uh, Charles had holed up in uh, Bourges, France, and was basically King of Bourges. But now with Joan fighting for him, he feels you know confident enough to declare himself you know uh, king of all of France. and he's given you know more of a proper coronation. And during the coronation, Joan spoke out to the court saying, Joan the Maid commands and informs you in the name of the King of Heaven, her rightful and sovereign Lord, in whose services she is each day that you should render true obedience and recognition to the gentle King of France. And if you do not, I promise you and certify upon your lives that we will enter with God's help all the towns that should belong to the Holy Kingdom and establish a good firm peace there, whoever comes against us. I commend you to God. May he watch over you if it pleases him. Man, she must have been insufferable to hang around, right? I feel like she just give all these long-winded speeches. Speeches all the time. Hey, John, John, do you want to go grab a sandwich? If God commands me to have a sandwich, then I will have a sandwich. If it is for the greater glory of friends. Ah, shut the fuck up. We just want to know if you want to grab some lunch. I, as the virgin, as the virginal maid of Orleans, if God wills it, will put a sandwich in one of my holes, but not that one, for that is for God alone. Okay. All right. We just wanted to know if you wanted to eat. We get it. You're a virgin. God likes you. Fucking calm down. So everything's going good, right, for Joan? Kind of. She's becoming popular with the people of France, very popular. She's seen as having won him the crown, you know, for, for Charles, which is, you know, true but not entirely true. Um, a lot of historians feel like, you know, had she not been surrounded by seasoned military commanders, she would have gotten her ass kicked. I mean, she she did do some really cool things. I'm not trying to say that she didn't. But remember also, she's a teenage peasant girl. She wasn't, you know, just out of out of nowhere, with no one no one's help, just she was a little too aggressive, from what I understand, looking back. Where it's like if she would have been allowed to just run things the exact way she wanted, she would have basically gotten them all killed. However, if she had not been there, the uh, captains would have been uh, uh, much less aggressive, and they probably wouldn't have uh, won these battles without her. So you know they each needed the other to get these things. It was, it was a group effort to win these battles, but the public doesn't really see it that way. They see her. Alone is this savior of France and the royal court doesn't care for that. You know, they're they're nervous regarding, you know, regarding how well she's received, received, excuse me, versus Charles. You know, they don't like a a common maid, you know, having more military success than the Dauphin and the official French army. They don't like how much the common people love her. And, uh, And this I'm just pointing this out because later when she's captured, probably why he was reluctant to help save her. Uh, on July 17th, Joan sends another letter, this time to the Duke of Burgundy, who is still aligned with the English crown, begging him not to fight his countrymen, and also telling him essentially that he better get his shit together and join the cause, or you know, off with his fucking head. You're with us or you're against us, Ron Burgundy. I mean, Duke of Burgundy. This is her letter she had dictated. A great and formidable prince, great and formidable prince, Duke of Ron Burgundy. I know you're kind of a big deal around here. No, but seriously, she says, Joan the Virgin requests of you in the name. See? Fuck. She can't, she can't get a single sentence out without referencing either God or her virginity. Joan the Virgin requests of you in the name of the King of Heaven, my rightful and sovereign Lord. That the King of France and yourself should make a good, firm, lasting peace. Oh man, you know, thinking about like this virgin stuff, I mean, what a what a terrible way to assign value to a human being. I think that's what like why it bothers me. Because like historically, it was just you know, it wasn't about what good things you did as a woman. It was about like, have you been fucked or not? Like, it was just your life was reduced to such a simple equation. And you know, and if and if the math worked out, then you were good. And if the math didn't work out, you were just worthless. You know, I just like how how much it would have sucked to be a woman back then. Just you know, like like if, like if that was how things you know worked today. Just uh, I founded a humanitarian organization that provides clean water and vaccines to children. Who would otherwise die, avoidable and agonizing death? Yes, yes, that's that's fine and that's fine. But have your loins been pierced by the meat of a man? Um, I don't, I don't know. That's any of your business. But what I do know is that I donate my time regularly to local animal shelters. I, I also gave some of my bone marrow to someone who, who would have died. They would have died had I not been a bone marrow, uh, you know, transplant mm, marrow. It, yes, that's fine. How many dicks have you placed upon thy tongue? Careful with this question, maiden. Any number other than zero places one's soul in jeopardy and one's body in the rack. Are, are you for real? Last year I put my career on hold to care personally for my dying mother. I've always been quiet at the movie theater. I don't leave my phone on. I share the sidewalk. I understand how to merge onto the freeway. It's my responsibility to adjust my speed to the flow of traffic and yield to cars already on the freeway instead of just ramshotting my way. What have you allowed in your pooper? Penis or pinky or both? Answer me, wench. It's fucking crazy, right? Can you imagine? That's all that—that's all that matters to people. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. You've done some battle stuff, but what about your hymen? Uh, you know, because that's like—is her nickname wasn't like Joan the Brave, wasn't Joan the Fearless, not Joan the Loyal, not Joan the Badass, not Joan the Savior or Patriot. No, Joan the Virgin. That's—that's that's her best quality because you know that threatens men the least. You know that she was a land unconquered by foreign dick, no threat to even the frailest of egos. All right, and she continues with her letter. And uh, I'll, I'll read a few sentences, but it's, just, it's too much. She goes, uh, fully pardon each other willingly, as faithful Christians should do. And if it should please you to make war, then go against the sacraments. Prince of Burgundy, I pray, beg, and request as humbly as I can that you wage war no longer in the Holy Kingdom of France. And order your people who are in any towns and fortresses of the Holy Kingdom to withdraw promptly and without delay. And as for the noble King of France, he is ready to make peace with you, saving his honor if you're not opposed. And I tell you in the name of the King of Heaven. All right, so you get it, right? She tells him that you know if he doesn't if he doesn't back down that you know God's going to be angry, uh, her hymen's going to be mad, and he's going to die. And uh, August seventh, <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't care he doesn't he doesn't give a shit about her letter. August seventh, the Duke of Burgundy and the Duke of Bedford both claim that Charles is uh, anointing and is invalid. Uh, they they don't care about Jones's letter. Duke of Burgundy actually issues a challenge to Charles to meet him on the field of battle personally. And, uh, Charles does not accept, he was, yeah, he wasn't a fucking brave man, really, doesn't seem like. I feel like, you know, he was very lucky to have Joan fight for him. He, uh, instead on August 28th, Charles signs a four-month treaty with the Duke of Burgundy to try and push pause on the fighting. You now let's talk about, let's talk about it for a bit. Let's hold, hold, up. Uh, he doesn't tell Joan that, which is unfortunate. Joan is seven, seven miles north of Paris waiting to attack the English-controlled city. Uh, she gets, uh, she gets bored waiting to hear from him. Uh, she doesn't hear about the treaty and, uh, and she attacks the city with four, three to 4,000 of her men and, uh, spends about two weeks in little skirmishes around the walls of the fortified city. She, uh, doesn't really accomplish much. And then on September 8th, Charles finally gives the go ahead to fully attack, uh, Paris. So, you know, uh, the treaty doesn't really hold, uh, and it doesn't work. And Doan takes a cross bolt to her thigh. She's badly wounded. She fails to take the city. And now people start to doubt her fucking one loss and people doubt her, doubt her, doubt her connection to God. Man, a lot of Fairweather fans. You now, when the going was good, they were hopping on the bandwagon. And now, can't get Paris. They're like, nah, I don't know. Maybe she's not. Maybe she's just crazy. Maybe God's not talking to her. Um, she has to go recover from that uh, or crossbow bolt wound. And then when she does, November 4th uh, to the 8th, Charles sends her to besiege uh, saint pierre uh, Le Mutier. More of a village than a town, but an expertly fortified village that uh, you know it's not gonna just buckle to anybody. And uh but it but it is easier to take than Paris. And really I get the historians feel like this might have been done as like a confidence builder. Like get another get another win under your belt it's kinda like a boxer. You know? You get you, you get your ass kicked in a championship fight. All right, let's find uh let's find somebody who just you know notch above us a basic sparring partner. Get it get in the ring with you. Get a, get another W, get you thinking right, then we'll then we'll work to to getting back to the title. Um November twenty fourth to December twenty fourth, uh uh, a, f- a few weeks you know after that uh, after that initial little victory she has a, she has another loss she fails to take the town of La Charite however a day after abandoning the siege of that heavily fortified village she uh, gets right back on the battle horse heads to Giorgio on Christmas Day and uh, and receives letters from Charles conferring nobility upon her and her family so you know she didn't get the win but she does get a uh, a thanks for the multiple and striking benefits of divine grandeur that have been accorded us through the agency of the mate. The letter that says that, and in consideration of the praiseworthy, graceful, and useful services already rendered by the aforesaid, you know, her family gets, uh, you know, a, a raise in status, and actually, she actually gets her town tax exempt status that lasted for a long time uh, after her death, even. So she gets, you know, she gets some awards for what she's done so far, and and then a few months later, on March 29th, she attacks the town of La Ni She's only leading 500 men at this point. She spends three weeks there, and she does take the city. So she does get another win. And then, according to legend, she performs a miracle. In April, Joan, according to witnesses, raises a child from the dead. Uh, Here is her talking about it later at her trial. How old was this infant? Some examiner asked her. Three days old. They told me three days had passed with no sign of life in the child, which was as black as my coat of mail. Uh, And then she was in church, kneeling before an image of the virgin, when the boy's mother and sisters came to her with with this little baby's corpse. She prays with them, and then she testified that at last life appeared in the child Child yawned thrice, was baptized, and then immediately died and was buried in consecrated ground. But you know, when the child yawned the three times, the color began to return. And the guy said, uh, "Was it said in the town that the resuscitation was due to your prayers?" She said, "I did not inquire about it, uh, although she she knew better than any that the incident had been trumpeted as a miracle." I gotta be honest, man. Uh, when I was reading about her, I was hoping to find a better better miracle story than that. <laughs> better miracle story than three yawns. Uh, by a baby who then just quickly died, you know, after being baptized. I mean, if you're going to work a miracle, fucking make it cool. Like bring the kid back to life, you know, and I don't know, keep him alive longer than a few seconds or a few minutes. Let him grow up to become a cool knight or something, you know, or work the fields with his family or be the town drunk, something, anything better than just yawning three times. Uh, the month following the miracle of the three yawns uh, was going to be a real bummer for Joan. Her ass kicking ways come to an end. She'd fight her last battle, May of 1430. Joan is in the town of uh, Compagnie. A reception is held in her honor because she's going to, she promised to defend the town from a Burgundian siege. And then that Duke of Burgundy, that dude who didn't care for her letter, he's amassed a sizable army. He's going to siege this town on behalf of the English crown. He demands her to, you know, head over uh, Compagnie. She doesn't. Joan of Arc plans to surprise the Burgundian assault with the assistance of Compagnie's governor, uh, Guillemin de Flavey, on uh, something like that, on May May 19th. Uh, attacking an outpost near neighboring uh, Margine while it was separated from the main force. Kind of uh, John of Luxembourg sees Joan and her men by chance. So she's going out to this little attack, attacks some people separated from the main herd. Some other dude sees her, gets reinforcements. Those people chase Joan back to the city. And uh, she rides in, in, in the very extreme rear of her forces, which so is like in a position of honor. You know, if anyone's going to be captured, it's going to be her. Man, leaders fought very differently back then. They put themselves in, you know, perilous situations all the time. And then before the French defenders could return to uh, Compagnier, the governor closes the city gate. And so it leaves Joan and and the the rear guard with her trapped outside the city walls to await either death or capture. Joan and and the men outside the wall surrender, and then a Burgundian soldier grabs the edge of her cloth of gold doublet, throws her off her horse, throws her onto the ground, and that's it for Joan's military career. She is now captured by the Burgundians. She's taken prisoner by the Duke of Burgundy. Who then hands Joan over on January third, fourteen thirty-one, to Pierre Cachon, a bishop of Bouvet, who would try her for heresy, right? And uh, and uh, and witchcraft by uh, by tribunal, which had been selected by Pierre Cachon himself and consisted of ten Burgundian theologians, twenty-two canons of Rouen, and, uh, and a bunch of monks from some other orders. And then in October of fourteen thirty, Joan decides she uh, she doesn't want to wait for this for this trial, and she tries to escape. She throws herself out of a tower window. Uh, and I guess there was nothing that could have broken her fall, not a tree limb, not a, not a, not a little hill of grass, not a cushion of undergrowth, nothing. She just, she throws herself out of the tower. She lands in the castle's dry moat (laughs) and doesn't die. And this escape attempt would uh, actually be used against her later at her trial because, uh, they, they, they tried to make it seem like she tried to commit suicide, which, you know, obviously a big sin. They would ask her later, did you expect to kill yourself when you leaped? She says, no, because I, I leaped. I commended myself to God and our lady. Okay. Uh, hadn't your voices forbidden you to jump? I begged their pardon afterward. I admitted I was wrong in jumping and my angels forgave me. She is clearly mentally ill. They saw my need and that I could in no way hold myself back. And they lent aid to my life and prevented me from being killed. Did you receive any great penance? A large part of my penance was that I hurt myself falling. <laughs> That's very funny. Did you? <laughs> Did you receive any punishment? I fucking, yeah, fucking landed in the moat and hurt you dumbass. That's my punishment was not having an angel catch me and just guide me to safe land and let me run off. Uh, the hurt Joan did herself was significant enough that she didn't know uh, where she was when she regained consciousness. Her, her Burgundian captors had to tell her. And then I guess she almost died. The physician thought she broke her back. And then uh, and then the trial really gets going. And man, what a trial it would be. Reminds me of the Salem witch trials we sucked on way back. Arguing about things no one can prove, like whether or not angels are real. Did angels forgive Joan from jump from window? Uh, in advance of her trial, November 9th and 11th, she's taken to Rouen, you know, in an iron cage. That's because that's, that's where the trial is going to be headed. She's transferred there in an iron cage. She's held in a standing position for a couple days, secured by the neck, hands, and feet. That had to have sucked. And uh, December 23rd, 1430, she, she arrives in uh, Rouen. Uh, Rouen, I guess that's how you say it, the capital of Normandy. A cell at Rouen is where Joan was held for the last five months of her life where she would always wear leg irons, where she'd she'd lay chained by the legs with two pairs of irons tightly secured by another chain which passed through the legs of her bed. That chain was attached to a great block of wood, five or six feet long. You know, it's all locked up. Night and day, she's left in the care of five guards uh, of, quote, the lowest sort common torturers. Uh, If she had to go to the bathroom, you know, uh, a guard would unlock and accompany her to a closet-sized room with a little hole in the floor. She'd just fucking take a shit directly into the moat. (laughs) Typically... The atmosphere that filled such privies was so statured with ammonia gas that these places came to be called cloakrooms where guests could expect their coats to be hung, uh, believing the caustic smell strong enough to kill vermin. That's hilarious to me. So, like, you know, they're having people over at the castle, uh, and they would hang, <laughs> hang their coats up in the shithouse because it stunk so bad they thought the stink would kill any, like, little parasites and stuff in their coats. Oh, my God. Once again, Joan's virginity is checked. Of course it was. Uh, to check it this time, she's stripped nude uh, there's a huge thing that went on sometimes at Inquisitions. Twenty of the priests assigned to her trial would each take a thick blade of field grass. And when her legs are spread wide, held there with a stock-type device, each priest gets, uh, would shove the little grass blade into her vagina exactly ten times and check it after each time. If there's any blood on the grass, then she's not a virgin. After all of that, her hymen is checked by a, uh, a doctor who would put a small ball of cheesecloth wrapped in twine, no bigger than the size of a small apple, into her vagina. It would be left there for two full days. Then Joan would have to jump in place for an hour, and then if the cheesecloth fell out, then her vagina is too loose and she's not a virgin. Uh, and if it falls out, the, also uh, if it doesn't fall out, excuse me, the, the cloth is taken out, and each of the priests would smell it, and if it did smell like dick, not a virgin. Uh, then, uh, uh, it, or, or I'm sorry, if it if it's still if it was like on the edge, if they're not sure if it smelled like dick or not, they would toss it into a stew pot and they would cook it into a broth. And if the broth tasted like dick, not a virgin, but if they're still kind of on the edge of like, "Ah, I think, I think it tastes like dick. I'm not sure. Then the priests would take turns, uh, for a full day, sucking each other's dicks to remind themselves what dick tasted and smelled like. And if you still think that this is the virginity test, uh, that actually happened, God, God bless you. I love you so much. I love you so much. If that, if during the last 30 seconds, you were like, are you fucking kidding me? What? Oh, that is, oh, that's horrible. No, her hymen was checked on though. That didn't happen. All that was made up. But her hymen was checked yet again by a midwife. Not a bunch of weird, strange, dick-sucking priests. Got to make sure that hymen's rock solid before sentenced her to, uh, to being burned alive. So, super important. And she passes again. Uh, she must have had the most thoroughly inspected hymen in vaginal history. To prevent sexual assault and protect her important hymen, Joan wore during her incarceration two layers of hosen securely fastened to her doublet the inner layer being waist cloth or waist high, conjoined woolen hosen attached to the doublet by a full 20 cords, each cord tied into three eyelets apiece for a total of 40 attachment points on the, on the inner layer of hosen. The second layer made of rugged leather attached by yet another set of many cords. And then once this outfit was thus fashioned together by dozens of cords connecting both layers to the doublet, it would be a substantial undertaking for anyone to get it off. Uh, yeah. And she did all of this, even though it, you know, it made, you know, uh, going to the bathroom extremely difficult. It was that important for her to make sure that no one, you know, snuck it, snuck a dick in there when she was sleeping or something. Uh, very strange obsession with virginity, but uh, you know, I guess I admire her conviction. And where the fuck is Charles during all of this? Where's uh, Where's fucking Chuck? You know, remember she busted her ass, you know, to get him crowned king, and uh, you know, he seems to have abandoned her once she's captured. Well, I guess historians they don't really know. Why why he did this for sure, because he never officially gave a reason, uh, probably because he was glad to, to see her out of his, of his hair. Probably probably the court's advice. Again, remember, they were worried about her popularity. Now they were kind of already winning the war. You know, maybe they thought they didn't need her specifically anymore to, to finish the, the, the route of the English. And it was just it was just a convenient capture. Uh, there was a bishop at the time who wrote Charles urging him to do everything in his power to help and ransom Joan of Arc from the enemy. Even said that he, would, you know, that he would be guilty of monstrous ingratitude if he didn't help, and and, and I guess the king just ignored that bishop's letter. Uh, I get him not doing anything militarily; it might not have been the the right time to lay siege to the town to save her. But but you know, why didn't he even try and like negotiate politically to get her out of there? It, it just feels like he he wanted her gone. So you know, probably not the best dude. Uh, January 9th, Jones' trial begins, and before we get into the trial's details, let's take a quick break from this uh, lengthy timeline and check in with today's idiot of the internet. <laughs> Internet. 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 Alright, quick note before I poke at a, uh, a little fun, a couple silly heads this week uh, As I stated at the beginning of the suck, I may be last week's idiot of the internet I may have grossly misunderstood a post that actually did make sense instead of being off the charts whack doodleness. Just, Just want you to know that I will be calling myself out again in today's Time Sucker updates Okay, so let's see if I get it right this week uh, user DocSpot posted a video titled, Joan of Arc Documentary, last November, that is uh, just that. It's a Joan of Arc documentary, a story of her life and death. And uh, and DJFX lets us know that A, he has watched it, and B, he doesn't like how she was treated at her trial. Posting, those who condemned her will pay. Um, do you know how time works, DJFX? FX? I'm I'm pretty sure and by pretty sure I mean positive that everyone who was going to pay either did pay or didn't already pay uh considering this happened almost 600 years ago. So maybe you should have went with something like I hope those condemned, you know, uh, I, I hope those of who those who condemned her did pay dearly. Or I I hope those who condemned her are continuing to pay in hell or something, you know, something like that. Maybe maybe add a at a parenthetical to your post, you know, something like you know, those who condemned her will pay. Please note, I am writing this in 1431 from my time machine. Um, user Sean O'Dwyer got very upset by the documentary, uh, specifically by England's treatment of Joan, and he got upset enough to post, we should all burn England and English to death. To to, <laughs> to hell with England. Destroy that devil nation. <laughs> ah, All right. Tell me how you really feel, Sean. Uh, you, you do realize that even though the English may have rigged her trial, they also could have easily just killed her for attacking them. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, she did devote her short adult life to waging war against them. I mean, you do realize that she did lead men into countless battles, trying to kill English soldiers and the supporters of, of English soldiers. A little silly to think that once they captured her, they're going to want to fucking throw her a parade, treat her like a queen. Uh, also maybe just a tad bit silly to burn the english today for what their ancestor did 6 centuries ago there's there's also that to think about a youtube battle broke out in the comment section those are always fun when people you know get like real butt hurt by what he, what they're posting back and forth starts off with some dude named michael shits on jones religion he posts uh so once again god picks an illiterate peasant to spread his word odd he never appears to anyone who is educated First off, let me just point out that while she wasn't educated, her contemporaries, again, found her far, far far from stupid, found her to be highly intelligent, actually. Well, religious user Matthew Fitzgerald, he doesn't care for Michael's inflammatory words, and he writes some of his own. He says, Michael, I let God decide who he picks for his ministries, and if you look back at all the biblical figures, they were all flawed in some way. Abraham almost killed his own son for God. Moses tried to get out of it when God asked him to do it. David was a murderer an adulterer, and sometimes a fool, so we shouldn't try to second-guess who God chooses. And then, uh, incredibly, Michael apologizes, posting, You're right. Sorry. Religion is a matter of faith, and to try and hold it to logical standards is not really fair. Uh, also, really, what do I care? It happened a long time ago. Doesn't affect my life. Have a good one. Uh, live and let live, Matthew. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, right. He doesn't post, People never post stuff like that. Hardly. Uh, He reiterates his original thought. He says, Matthew, funny how your God never chooses intelligent people. So he doubles down. And Matthew fires right back. uh, He says, Michael, that's because he gave all the smarts to you. So you can spend your time making YouTube comments. Because apparently you have no depth or life. But thanks for your words of wisdom. Just what the world needs another moron. And then Michael lets the world know that he really doesn't like being called a moron. Because he ups the ante significantly. Posting. Matthew, well I'm smart enough not to believe in some man-made Sky Fairy, but it's obvious that you do believe in the Sky Fairy, which explains your lack of depth and no life. Just what the world needs. Another Jesus freak fuckhead. Piss on your God. Well, he really kicked it up with that one. Matthew, not amused. Not amused. He shoots back over, Michael. First of all, man, I don't give a fuck what you believe. You are the YouTube comment king. Now leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> I love it. That's when, like, you know, this is probably not a guy, based on his earlier comments, who throws around a lot of F-bombs. But, ugh, that one riled him. When he said, piss on your god, he's like, I, you will not say that. And and then he disappears from the comment board entirely, despite many other users trying to bait him back in. And, you know, like, he got notifications every time those extra comment replies came in. I bet I bet he was riled up for so, for so long. I bet for, like, weeks, you know? Maybe just to no one in particular. He's like, fuck Michael! Fuck that godless troll. Now, in in my mind, I'm sure this didn't happen, but I like to imagine him just like fucking punching a hole in the drywall of his home. You know, his wife's concerned. Matthew, are you thinking about Michael again? No, Elizabeth, I'm fine. He's not worth my thoughts. He's not worth it. And he punches another hole in the wall. Uh, And then my favorite for this week, user Richard Wilmot, PhD, uh, proves that his doctorate is not in joke writing by posting the following. What Jones said to shithole Charles. I've got this great joke for you from God. What did the cherry say to the cock? Dot, 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 dot. Hi, man. You guys get it? Do you get it? Hi, man. It's in hymen. You get it? Because she was a virgin. It's a wordplay joke. It really doesn't work as a joke the way it's written because it's too convoluted. First off, it's corny as fuck. And then also, why would Joan say that to Charles? Why? Why would? Why would he think about, like, it's funny that she's a virgin? Because he's not a virgin, like like I don't understand like why would virginity matter to to him? Would he be Would he be impressed by her her wordplay skills with the, by her punniness? And and why why would, why does God need to be uh, in involved in that joke? Why like right? I've got a great joke for you from God. Why why do you set it up that way? That's very confusing. Because then you expect some religious bent to it, and there's not there's no religious payoff. You set up God, and then you don't bring him back later in the joke, and then it just goes to a virginity joke. You know, it's just so weird. Hey, man, got this great joke from God for you. Are you ready for your for your God joke? Okay. Little boy asks his dad, what's in between Mum's legs? And he says, it's paradise, my boy. Okay. What's in between your legs? And he says, it's the key to paradise. And then the boy goes, well, you better get that lock changed because the prick next door has a spare key. Ha <laughs> ha. God wanted you to hear that. Do you get it? God thought you would enjoy that. He thinks it's funny that your wife is cheating on you. Do you get it? God doesn't like you, but rather than add further misery directly to your life, God thought it would be better if he told me a joke to tell you that would annoy you if, in fact, your wife is cheating on you. If not, well, you know what? Mysterious ways. Truly, God works in mysterious ways. Silly old Dr. Dick. Dr. Dick Wilmot, joke doctor. Humor surgeon, Ph.D. in knee slappery. Double Ph.D. in tomfoolery. All right, let's get out of here. Let's get back into some Joan, which is a weird thing to say. Since Joan is the name of my mother-in-law. And I've been talking, I mean, you know, a lot about Joan's pussy today. I mean, not my mother-in-law's, but Joan of Arc's. You know, but I have been talking about some Joan puss, you know. And I hope my wife, Lindsay, hears me say that. I hope she hears me talking about sweet, sweet Joan puss. God, so nice, so soft. Hope Lindsay hears that. Throws up. Maybe I really am uh, an idiot of the internet. Let's get out of here. Let's get back into sucking on some sweet, sweet Joan. Idiots of the internet. Yeah. Internet. internet. All right. Now I'm worried that my mother-in-law is going to listen to this episode because she does sometimes. So, Joan, if you're listening, I don't think about your sweet puss. I'm sure. It's, <laughs> I'm sure it's fantastic, but I don't. I try to think about it. And now I'm, now I am thinking about it, which is probably, now I've said that, now I can't, now I can't not think about it. So that's weird. All right, let's get back to Joan of Arc. Joan's on trial. 60 assessors, 60 dudes with nothing better to do than decide if Joan is a witch or not. Uh, 40 of whom will attend each day of the trial's public sessions. These people are drawn from the University of Paris, mostly Dominicans. Priests, uh, this trial is financed by those loyal to England. So, you know, it's a fucking sham. That's not good for Jones' chances. Church law states that all people under 25 uh, accused of heresy uh, must have a lawyer. But this teenager is is denied a legal advocate, forced to defend herself in front of a rigged jury. So, you know, it's a kangaroo court. Many historians cite this trial as the first important, widely publicized witch trial in burning in Europe. Her trial, its verdict and the publication of her example, unites uh, uh, as a catalyst for three centuries worth of zealous, often hysterical witch hunts. Amounting to theatrically cruel execution of as many, check this out, as many as 100,000 women, in the words of one historian. A vast holocaust, in that historian's words. Damn, that's a lot of killing over nonsense. Uh, Joan has been charged with three primary indictments. Uh, the first of these is that she used magic because she claimed to hear voices from St. Michael, St. Margaret, and St. Catherine. Uh, it was these voices told her to dress as a boy, fighting for the French in the Hundred Years' War against the English. The charge against her states that the voices were actually demons. Ah, instead of saints, yeah, you got tricked, Joan. You've been talking to the devil. Devil's talking about your hymen, not God. Second uh, indictment affirms uh, what was actually true. She was headstrong and speaking out against her faith. The reason this was a crime is because she acted inappropriately as a woman uh, towards the church at that time. She dressed as a boy, fought in a war, took communion as a male, and that horrified the judges and people of her day. Uh, The third set of accusations reflected Joan of Arc's pure obedience to God. It just said uh, she does not submit herself to the judgment of the church or to that of living men, but to God alone, uh, which she claimed to know through diabolical voices. Uh, Heresy, witchcraft are the two most important actual charges. Uh, February 21st, 1431, the first public trial is held. Joan is taken to the streets to her trial. Uh, in shackles because her leg shackles are so tight. She can't even be marched or really, she can't really walk. So she's just kind of half dragged to her, uh, trial location. She's still refusing to abandon her men's clothing, right? Yeah. She claims God has not given her permission yet to go back to women's wear. It's poor woman, brave, cor- courageous, loyal, but also clearly mentally ill. Uh, the trial is strenuous. Her, her accusers ask difficult questions meant to trip up the maid of Orleans uh, more often than not, she's asked more than one question at a time and they would not repeat themselves. Oh, she's got to be confusing. Each day of the trial goes on for eight to 11 hours of absolute nonsense. Here are some excerpts from that trial. Will you place your hands on the Holy Gospels and promise to speak the truth and answer to all questions put before you? I do not know what you wish to examine me on. Perhaps you might ask such things that I would not tell. Will you swear to speak the truth upon those things which you are asked to concerning the matter of faith about what you know? About my mother and father and what I have done since I have taken the road to France, I will gladly swear. As for my revelations from God, I will say nothing, not to save my head. What priest baptized you? Master Jean Binet, as far as I know. Is Master Binet still living? I believe so. How old are you? Nineteen, I think. Recite the Pastor Noster for us. I will gladly, if you hear me in confession. Where do you expect to die? Wherever God pleases for myself, I do not know the time or the place any more than you do. So this kind of shit goes on, but just like 11 hours, 11 hours a day asking herself for two weeks. Uh, And then, you know, she answers the questions better than her inquisitors had hoped for. So then they moved her trial from the public area to her cell. So people are less inclined to get on her side and revolt when they eventually burn her which they clearly intended to do, in my opinion, from the very beginning. There was no way she was getting out of this. From March 10th to March 17th, uh, she's interrogated in her cell a total of nine times. Uh, March 25th, Bishop uh, Cushon tells uh, Joan that she can attend Palm Sunday if she'll agree to wear women's clothing. She refuses, misses the first Palm Sunday of her life. April 15th, Bishop uh, the bishop, in an unusual gesture, sends Joan a, a piece of carp for dinner, and then she becomes very ill and thinks that uh, he tried to poison her. Uh, historians probably think it was just... Uh, You know, most likely a foodborne illness from the lack of hygiene and treatment of food back then. May 2nd, but, you know, still just interesting. Maybe he did try to poison her. May 2nd, Joan is publicly admonished for failing to submit to the church, wearing male clothing, and practicing witchcraft. So she's brought back in public to be shamed on these charges again. May 9th, the bishop threatens to torture Joan to get her full confession. The Inquisition favors the rack. They're threatening her with the rack now. They're going to extract secrets, you know. Uh, They have the operators standing by. Preparing to pull her bones out of joint. I guess she doesn't even flinch. You know, just like, all right, do what you got to do. May 24th, she's publicly accused of witchcraft. Again, they're ready to burn her. She decides to confess her sins. Agrees to put on women's clothing to avoid the flames. So she gets a little nervous towards the end. Says she'll never, you know, wear men's attire again. Never pick up arms against the English again. She's emotionally wrecked. She's taken back to prison. She's terrified about what's to happen to her. But then on May 28th, a couple days later, she's like, nope, I'm going to fucking stick to my guns. God hasn't told me I can dress like a woman, so she goes back to dressing like a man. And this is what, you know, they say got her killed. This is the reason. They're like, well, she fucking did it again, so now we got to kill her. So, uh, you know, the, the bishop is personally offended. Two days later, March 30th, you know, she's taken to be burned alive in the old market, you know, for for heresy. Uh, because, you know, and because she won't stop dressing like a man. So uh, that was like the official reason she was eventually killed, was just specifically for dressing like a dude and and, and not stopping dressing like a dude. Um she she brought out in like a rough tunic, kind of gray blackish, and on the mater, which she had uh, upon her head this little crown thingy, uh they wrote the words heretic, relapse, apostate, idolater and uh and then a little placard set before the bundles of wood that bore the legend Joan who had herself named the maid, liar, pernicious person, abuser of people, soothsayer, superstitious woman, blasphemer of god. Presumptuous, unbeliever in the faith of Jesus Christ, boaster, idolater, cruel, dissolute, invoker of devils, apostate, schismatic, heretic, hymen bragger. I made up that last one, but the rest of them were on there. And then the fire is lit, and legend has it a lot of weird shit happened. Now, this seems very kind of folklorish to me, but this is what people said. They saw uh, a lot of people who watched her die. Uh, said that they saw, you know, the word Jesus written in the flames, you know, in the fire in which she burned. Uh, supposedly an English soldier who had been particularly vocal about his hatred for her uh, as she burned, succumbed to a rapture so intense it left him insensible. Later, when he was revived with the aid of strong drink, he spoke of seeing a white dove flying from the direction of France at the moment she was giving up her ghost. While her body burned, she kept repeating the name of Jesus over and over to give her strength. Another legend, the executioner who had been instructed to incinerate her clothes, shoes, plates, spoon, whatever belongings she had, you know, uh, at the very end with every scrap of her flesh and then throw that ash into the Seine River. I think I was saying it's sign earlier probably, but Seine River uh, found it impossible to burn her organs supposedly or reduce them to ashes. You know, he kept trying to re-burn them. That was that legend of the three burnings. Uh, And he believed he witnessed a miracle. Supposedly by noon, the executioner was on his knees before a priest weeping for his lost soul over the horrific crime he'd committed. And then the, uh, and then the hundred years' war continued for 22 years after her death. And then in 1435, the Treaty of Arras was signed between the Duke of Burgundy and King Charles VII. Philip recognized Charles VII as King of France, and in return, Philip was exempted from homage, uh, homage to the crown. Charles agreed to punish the murderers of Philip's father, Duke John I of Burgundy. England's military weakened under the leadership of the boy King Henry VI, only 14 years old in 1435, ruling really now with a, without a regent. And then Charles VII took back the Duchy of Normandy in 1450. And after the Battle of Castillon in 1453, the English did not officially sign a peace treaty, but they did just leave France other than that port city of Calais and the war is over. And then when Charles VII had the English kicked you know, completely out of France, then he has Joan retried uh, in death. She is found innocent of all charges on July 7th, 1456. You know, so that's nice, but, you know, 25 years too late. And then uh, way later, April 18th, 1909, uh, you know, hundreds of years later, she is uh, uh, beatified, which means she's recognized officially by the Catholic Church as a blessed person. Um, It's a declaration made by the Pope that like a deceased, you know, uh, lived a holy life or a martyr's death and is now definitely dwelling in heaven. And uh, as a process, the beatification consists of a years-long examination of the life, virtues, writings—years-long, excuse me, more than one year—and reputation for holiness of the servant as a servant of God under consideration. Blah blah blah. Uh, it's like it's like a saint light. It's like saint sainthood light. And then on May 16, 1920, uh, Joan is canonized by the Church and made officially a saint. She's canonized by Pope Benedict the 15th. And uh, concluding the canonization process. Uh, That the sacred congregation of rights instigated after a petition in 1869 By the French uh, French Catholic hierarchy Took 51 years to get all the paperwork done Uh, Man, you thought the government would move slow 51 years, 489 years after she dies, she's made a saint And that takes us out of this beast of a time suck timeline Good job, soldier you made it back Barely Wow, what a Game of Thrones type suck, right? Like many sucks, I found myself intrigued more by the times Joan lived in than by Joan herself in, in a lot of ways. Not that she wasn't incredible. Uh, sorry to my French time suckers. I know I have some uh, for the words, but mother fuck, I, I will say that is the hardest thing by far of doing time suck. You know, sometimes I get jealous of podcasts that do like one, like like uh, like the dollop. All U.S. history. Only U.S. history. <laughs> or like my buddies at Small Town Murder. Always a murder story. Uh, usually in America because then you don't have to fucking worry about the weird ass French words. so but I know the most of you don't care about the, that that much you, you like the the you like to learn the the history you like to learn the gist of the story like I do and uh, you like to be challenged and so you know the, the, these are definitely challenging. man uh, 13 known engagements is uh, what Joan fought in. her troops were victorious nine times uh, and, then, and then also in addition to that, at least 30 different cities, towns and villages surrendered without a fight when she approached their army. Uh, So that's pretty cool. Uh, She was a skilled horseman, swordsman. Tactically, she she did know how to direct armies and place gunpowder, artillery, which is impressive considering her lack of proper military training. Uh, She did, you know, according to war historians, she never pulled off like a major upset against an army with superior artillery. All four of her defeats occurred when the enemy matched her artillery strength. But she was an aggressive and competent military leader. And again, very impressive considering her age and background. And uh, the time she lived in, man, full of so much chaos, so many deals being made, alliances formed. That was the most interesting part to me. Uh, treaties signed and then broken over and over and over again. And then, you know, in the end, she's tried by, by a bunch of old men, none of whom ever fought in battle, some kangaroo court, everything's questioned, including her virginity once again. You know, and then she's put to death essentially for just dressing like a man. I mean, I know we have plenty of our, plenty of problems in the world today, but man, we don't, our problems aren't shit compared to the problems they had back then. I mean, I know there there are innocent people on death row. I know there are innocent people behind bars. But I do feel like, for the most part, you know, like there has to be, you know, some evidence against you to, uh, you know, be uh, improperly imprisoned. You know, you had to be at least kind of like wrong place, wrong time. You had to be very unlucky. But, man, back then, you didn't have to do anything. they could just be like, yeah, we don't like the, the pants you're wearing. You got pants on. So, uh, fucking, all right, put them on fire. Burn them. Burn them He's got pants on. Uh, all right. So let's take another look back at this crazy time, this crazy time in the world's history uh, with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number eight. What if I just had a stroke right now and just went to wrong numbers? Number 17. Number six. Number ocho. No, number one. Joan of Arc's military success against the English and English allies in 1429 when she was just 16, 17 years old turned the tides of the 100 years war against the english and paved the way for king charles the 7th to take the throne of france and kick the english out for good. number 2, joan was for sure a virgin. she had that sweet hymen taste, uh, t- tasted oh god, tested over and over again. she didn't have a taste of it tasted ever. angels checked in on her regarding that hymen. the royal court of france gave it a look over. the inquisition gave it a look over. you know, there are rumors uh, that she was raped, but uh, historians chalk these up to a mistranslation during her trial. So if you're like, wait a minute, her hymen actually wasn't attacked," uh, they don't think that was true. They don't think uh, anyone uh, ever got to her uh, when she was imprisoned. Joan of Arc, number three, is in fact Saint Joan of Arc. Uh, she was not made a saint until nearly 500 years after death. Small consolation, you know, uh, for the man she helped crown king, not doing shit to help her during her trial. Number four, Joan would have never been allowed anywhere near the future king of France had it not been for prophecies around, you know, pertaining to a, a virgin, a woman of France, saving them, uh, especially that one attributed to Merlin, a wizard, who supposedly stated that a maid would, would come from the forest to save France. And number five, new info, let's talk a little uh, Joan of Arc pop culture. Several films have been made about Joan of Arc over the years, and most have been panned. In 1999, there was a four-hour miniseries t- titled Joan of Arc, Starring uh, Lili Sobieski uh, Sobieski, uh, With a 10% favorable rating amongst critics That's not good And a 58% favorable rating from the audience at Rotten Tomatoes Uh, Victoria Alexander of FilmsAndReview.com Said Sobieski doesn't have a clue So that's not good Uh, And there was also the two and a half hour long 1999 Mila Jovovich, Joan of Arc, The Messenger 30% favorable rating from critics 58% for the film as a, a from the audience, Kenneth Turin from the LA Times said of the film, Nothing less than a miracle saved France. The messenger tells us, and nothing less than a miracle would be needed to rescue this film from itself. Uh, Terry Lawson from the Detroit Free Press says, What an unholy mess. And this is my favorite. Uh, Widget Walls of NeedCoffee.com says, I know less about Joan of Arc now than I did going into the film. So I didn't watch those. I went way back, way, way back, and I did watch a film from 1928. Uh, it's a Danish-directed French silent film called The Passion of Joan of Arc, and uh, and I wouldn't have known about this film if I hadn't have done this suck, so thanks for suggesting it. 98% favorable rating amongst critics. 93% favorable uh, rating amongst the audience, even though it was a silent film that apparently also didn't even have an official score, at least not one that's known. When it was uh, viewed in 1928, a live orchestra, would play whatever the uh, head of the orchestra thought suited the film best. I recommend watching it uh, accompanied by System of a Down's mesmerized and hypnotized albums. No, that's, a, that's a terrible choice. Actually, uh, "Messe de Notre Dame," I think is how you say it, by the 14th century composer, and I'm not even going to try and say this fucking hornet's nest of a name. Uh, G U I L L A U M E D E M-A-C-H-A-U-T. The Frenchest of French, all French names. Uh, he's, a, he's a composer. I'm not uh, – I don't know that much about composers, but apparently he was well-known. He was an ancient – and uh, you can find versions of it on YouTube, Spotify, etc. It's a masterpiece of medieval music from what I read. Uh, originally performed at masses. Many consider the performance of Rene uh, Jean Falconetti, who played Joan in the film. Uh, To be one of the single greatest, if not the single greatest, acting performances of all time. The film was uh, controversial in its day. Director Carl Theodore Dreyer premiered the film April 21st, 1928 in Copenhagen. Then in uh, that fall, it debuted in Paris in edited form. The Archbishop of Paris, the French government, worked together to cut the film down from 110 uh, to 82 minutes. It was protested in Britain for depicting Joan's British captors too harshly. I love when people do that. Give me a fucking break been hundreds of years since this happened. You're like, nah, it makes us look bad. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. Uh, make, make the British uh, soldiers smile more. Make them more friendly. That'd be like uh, Germans getting mad about like a World War II depiction of Hitler. Like make him a little less angry towards the Jews. Make him a little happier. What? Why? It's fucking, that's what that's what happened. On, on December 6th, uh, 1928, the film's only negative is destroyed when the Berlin studio it, that housed it burned down. Carl uh, Dreyer then recut the film from negatives of alternate uh, shots, originally unused takes. And then in 1929, the lab, those negatives were stored and burned down. How crazy is that, man? Joan burned down, and so did the first two cuts of her film. Uh, the original version of the film was lost for decades. And in 1951, a copy of the negatives of the second cut was found, uh, but Dreyer himself did not care for that version. Then in 1981, an employee at the Dykemark Mental Institution in Oslo, Norway found a canister containing the original cut of the film in a janitor's closet. How cool is that? Apparently the director of the institution uh, in 1928 was also a published historian and had requested a cut of the film. Got it. It got forgotten about. And uh, and thanks to that, now you can watch this lost masterpiece for free on YouTube. Roger Ebert praised the film and said, You cannot know the history of silent film unless you know the face of Rene Falconetti. Uh, in 2010, the Toronto International Film Festival released its essential 100 list of films, which merged one list of the 100 greatest films of all time as determined by an expert panel of Toronto Toronto International Film Festival curators with another list determined by Toronto International Film Festival stakeholders. And The Passion of Joan of Arc was ranked as the most influential film of all time. Uh, the lead of the movie was uh, there's legends around the movie it was so cruelly directed by the director to evoke the pain of Joan's persecution and trial that she uh, she stopped uh, working in film after that. It was only her second film, and then she was like, nope, done. She returned to theater after its production. So uh, so check it out, you know? Give it a give it a, get a little look-see on YouTube, and that's it for today's uh, Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Joan of Arc has been sucked. Holy shit, my brain hurts. Uh, that was a long one, man. You know, next time, uh, I do a shorter suck, you know, if you're like, oh man, that that wasn't as much suck as I wanted. You remember this one. You remember this epic fucking long ass time suck with so many French words. I gave it my best. I'm sure some of you will write in with some updates, but just know I fucking, I tried my best. I really did. Uh, big thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell, Alex Dugan, the Bitelixer team, Danger Brain, Merch Maestro, Eric Radiker, Lindsey Cummins, and, uh, just the entire... Time Suck team for their help. Huge thanks to Heather Rylander this week for kicking me off on this giant Joan of Arc suck. And, uh, this Friday we got another bonus episode, Edgar Allen Poe. Yes, we are back in America. Oh, my mushed mouth is so happy. So happy. Uh, what was up with that dark, creepy fuck of a writer? You ever seen a picture of Edgar Allen Poe? Looks more like a serial killer than an author. Uh, he was a literary giant. Made the short story popular in America. Considered to be basically the inventor of American detective fiction. He lived an odd life. Uh, he was the first American author to try and make a living off only his fiction. He was a trailblazer. And he had two dicks. Uh, and we're going to explore both of them. Both over 10 inches long and 7 inches in girth. He had two thermoses in his pants. Flaccid. Very impressive. That's not true. Uh, but he. what is true is he's basically the father of American uh, horror. And we love horror here on The Suck, so we're going to suck his strange life. Uh, this Friday, all of it. And now, uh, let's find out what you suckers uh, have been drawn to this past week. And let's let's throw myself under the bus. Let's, uh, I'm getting called out this week on some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. All right, Time Suckers. Time for me to wallow in some shame. Eat some crow. Turns out, I may have fucked up in numerous ways. Uh, in regard to last week's Japanese Suicide Force episode, which is unfortunate because I felt really good about that one. For starters, uh, my favorite idiot of the internet comment in weeks uh, may not have been idiotic. I may have completely misinterpreted it. YouTube user Eman Ali posted under the trailer for the horror movie The Forest, a movie that is supposed to be set in a Japanese Suicide Force. He posted, boycott this movie. They are turning. Actual mentally ill people who committed suicide with grieving family members into evil spirits and scary ghosts. This is so offensive. Please don't watch this. Mental illness is a huge issue in Japan. Stop taking away its importance. And I made fun of Eamon for thinking that the ghosts of mentally ill people who committed suicide were, were used in filming, which is <laughs> – which may be ridiculous uh, for me to do that. It was ridiculous if he thought that. And many timersuckers suckers wrote in, including Cassie from Kansas City, who said, listening to the Suicide Force suck, and I'm pretty sure – that last idiots of the internet meant that the production company was profiting off real people's tragedy. Instead of creating a fictitious setting for the movie, like half of the marketing is already done if you're setting a film in the suicide forest. It's like setting a fictitious uh, love story that ends in lovers finding each other in the world trade center rubble right before the tower collapses. They just thought it was in poor taste. But I'm sure, oh suck master, you already knew that. This was just a test. I didn't. Uh, suck on my wayward son, Cassidy from Kansas City. Sorry Casty, I have let you down. Or have I, or have I, uh, maybe I, you know what? Now that you've mentioned that, I, I, I it was a test. It was a test. Ha <laughs> Just oh, testing you. Wasn't Lucifina tricking me. Uh, Megan Henderson reiterated Cassidy's statement writing. Hey Dan, just listened to suicide forest podcast. It's amazing. Except your idiots of the internet portion. The last one that you couldn't get over <laughs> the guy talking about the mentally ill people being turned into monsters. Even just from hearing you read the comment, it doesn't sound like he thinks that's what literally happens. Uh, to me, LOL. It sounds more like he is upset that mentally ill people have been portrayed or turned into, you know, the movie itself, as, as in monsters. The fact that anyone, <laughs> the fact that anyone would interpret that comment into him literally believing the di- director hired a necromancer is bizarre to me. Just my two cents. Love your show, hail Luciferina. Thanks, Megan. Okay, all right, all right, Megan and Casty, and so many others. I think I know what happened here. Sometimes for comedic entertainment value, the comic in me really just wants something to be true. It's a good example of cognitive bias, you know, that I try to fight and sometimes I lose the battle. Basically, you know, the thought that Eamon actually believes that spirits of mentally ill people who committed suicide are then somehow used in a film, that some kind of necromancer (laughs) brings them into some you know, filmable existence and gets him to follow, you know, a director's instructions. I wanted that. I wanted him to believe that so badly for my own comedic entertainment uh, that I that I think I just overlooked the more obvious probably answer that, you know, he didn't want th- them exploiting the deaths of mentally ill people for profit, which is, is, you know, that makes more sense. So thanks for calling me out. I will work harder to not just see what I want to see with YouTube commenters uh, going forward. Uh, also, I riled a few time suckers up with some Japanese mispronunciations. Sherry Cortez, many other time suckers wrote in about a mispronunciation or a, a yeah, pronunciation struggle, excuse me, I had with last week's time. So, saying, Dear Reverend Dr. Professor Sucker, MD, you and your pronunciations. <laughs> Being a Japanese studies minor in college and writing her thesis on the samurai, I screamed every time you mispronounced uh, daimyo. Uh, it isn't however... It isn't I can't remember. I think I blacked out whenever you said it. It's, it's the proper pronunciation of uh uh daimyo is like so. Daimyo, like yo yo, what's up, homie? <laughs> Everything else was pretty on the money. It was just that one word that had me going into seizures. Thanks that's that's all for now. Good job on the samurai history. It's hard to put together a thousand year history in the space of a few minutes. I barely scratched the surface with a hundred plus page paper. Damn. Bravo, master of the suckage. Well, thanks for that. Uh, Time sucker Ted Samuel reiterated this message saying, Dan, you mush mouth motherfucker. (laughs) I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure uh, daimyo is pronounced yet daimyo or daimyo, not damya as it sounded (laughs) coming from you. But that's the way I've heard uh, heard it from other sources. Keep on sucking. Hope that the book I sent you helped the samurai info you presented. Yes, Ted. uh, Thank you for the samurai book. Putting a samurai suck together. On the calendar right now. Well, you and Sherry, uh, a lot of other time suckers are correct. Yes, yes. Um, the correct pronunciation is daimyo. I think I'm saying it right now. I, I wrote it out phonetically for myself is daimyo. Uh, daimyo. Daimyo. Uh, in my defense, I did look up three different pronunciation videos for that word, and all three sounded differently. This is the trouble, man, with like foreign words. Like uh, I, I have found the dictionary.com for those of you who have pronunciation struggles of your own. For they do a great uh, pronunciation, little audio MP3 for all the words in that dictionary, and they also break it down into a phonetic spelling. But you know, when you're going to like uh, names of cities, towns, geographic regions in other countries, not as easy to find those. And then also, there's that whole thing of like they can be pronouncing it in the way you would say it in that language, which can, which can sound a little silly trying to do it in your language. Or it can be like uh, instead of the Americanized version as far as dialect, it can be like the British version, Scottish, Irish, Canadian, South African, Australian, New Zealander. You know, so it's tricky. It's tricky. Uh, but but I but I do want to get better at it, you know. And I, and I will say, you know, what I focus on putting together these sucks, you know, I, my first priority is, is to, you know, work on like the narrative, make that better. Uh, then some comedy. Make sure, you know, factual. Make sure there's some comedic value in there. Make sure it's, you know. Informative in in a way that's able to be learned. And and then I I will admit that pronunciation is the smallest priority given for me, but I I clearly need need to keep working on it. All right, one more Japanese update this week uh, from Japanese American time sucker Linda uh, Rivera Matsuo, who wrote Insane Hazi Mimaste. I think is how you say that. I I I watched some videos. Hazi Mimaste. Uh, suck master, which is which means nice to meet you Japanese, just listen to your uh, Aoki Gahara episode As a first generation American of Japanese descent I cringed through the entire beginning Of the episode with your pronunciations, but all is forgiven A for effort, thank you Languages are hard Fucking yeah they are, just wanted to give you Another tidbit that you might find interesting I know you said you intended to do a samurai episode I just wanted to let you know uh, That the at the end Of the uh, seppuku ritual Uh, The end is not actually the beheading. Along the lines of the Japanese belief that the soul is in the belly, the reason to cut the belly open is to show your lord that your belly isn't black and that you meant no ill intent, even if you were being sentenced to suicide for something that was not your fault. Few people are said to have fully completed the ritual, which is to actually reach inside your belly and pull your guts out to show them to your lord. Wow! Just made it that much more hardcore. Along the lines of people that follow Bushido... You might want to look into the Yakuza, uh, their role after World War II and what the balance is with the government now. Interesting stuff. Keep up the good work. Always look forward to new episodes. Hail Nimrod. Send my love to Bojangles. Thank you, Linda. That was an intense update, man. And Yakuza are also on the possible topic list. Yeah, very interested in that international crime syndicate. Uh, Hail Nimrod to you. Bojangles is most happy. Last update today. I know this is a long suck today, uh, but I wanted to include this too. It's about virtue signaling. Because uh, I've been throwing the term out recently, and Timesucker JT had some thoughts about it, about my use of it. Uh, JT wrote in saying, uh, hey, artist formerly, currently, and likely, futurely, known as Dan, I just wanted to write in a bit about a topic you have talked about recently in the Edit to the Internet segment, virtue signaling. Uh, even ignoring the political use of the phrase, I have always found the way people talk about virtue signaling to be somewhat, I guess, inconsistent. To start, I actually agree with you for the most part, and then I have always found uh, it makes me irritable – When I read a comment chain, or even worse, multi-paragraph Facebook posts that always boil down to, I sure am sad that this horrible thing happened, that has nothing to do with me, and I just want you all to know that my thoughts and prayers are about this sad thing, even though it doesn't matter if you know about my thoughts. When I read these proclamations, my first thought is always that the person posting this is just doing it for attention or to make something not about them suddenly about them. However, over time, I've begun to wonder just how intentional virtue signaling is, because just to use you as an example, in many time sucks, you spend some time in the episode talking about how you feel about what something did or what someone did, uh, excuse me, whether it's the serial killer of the week uh, saying that they're a terrible person who should be capitally punished, which for the record I tend to agree with, or even in the latest suck about the uh, uh, Aoki Ahara uh, when you commented about the Paul – or the Logan Paul video. Don't get me wrong. He's a douche, but uh, you taking time to tell us – but but we're – sorry. uh man – Trying to figure out this the sentence for, but was you taking time to tell us that you think it was douchey of him to do what he did? Any different mm-hmm. from the YouTube commenters saying that they think it was bad of him to do it? I know, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yep, uh, I'm not saying that you should by any means stop giving your ethical opinions on things. In fact, just the opposite. I think that is it that that it is. The humanity of the show, but I do have to wonder how it is different from virtue signaling in other ways. I'm not trying to be accusatory or slam your hypocrisy or anything silly like that. Honestly, I just think that it's a poorly defined term that's gotten passed around too much. All that said, I've always maintained a general policy that I would rather hear a disingenuine caring thought than I would a genuine harmful thought. So I hope this made sense and that you keep taking us idiots – taking those idiots of the internet to task. Keep on sucking, JT. Thank you, JT. Yeah, that was a lot of info, but great info. Sorry uh, that I stumbled a little bit there in the middle. And um, yeah, man, uh, you really made me think with that one. I was like, God, I guess I, I do kind of do that. Uh, I do see your point about expressing my opinion, sometimes being the same as virtual signaling. Uh, to me, I guess I'm trying try- trying to differentiate it. It's totally cool, I think, to show support for someone if they ask for it or if your support adds to the conversation or if you're letting someone just you admire know that you support them from a genuine place or support their cause, etc. To me, it's virtue signaling when the when the gesture seems like very obvious and hollow. Like, uh, I guess an example I would use, like like if you're anti-gun and there's a there's a school shooting video and you leave some comment like, "How many kids have to die before something is done? Why aren't we taking this issue more seriously as a nation?" As someone who doesn't own a gun, I wish that everything or everyone else would lay their weapons down to reduce the chances that this stops happening. No more guns equals no more shootings. Like when someone posts something like that, while well, I don't personally agree with their with their commentary. I respect them seeming to have a real opinion. It feels thought out. That, to me, is not virtue signaling. To me, it would be something like, uh, I don't think kids should be shot at schools anymore. It's wrong. I don't agree with kids being shot. To me, it's just so dumb. It's like, yeah, no shit, idiot. We all we all know it's wrong to do that. But that's just my, I guess, interpretation of it. Because defined by Wikipedia, it, it's a little different than the example I just used. It's the conspicuous expression of moral values done primarily with the intent of enhancing standing within a social group. And that's hard to figure out because you're talking about motive. You know, you have to prove motive, I guess, with virtue signaling. Like, like is someone saying, let's say someone says, you know, fuck Trump. Are, are they saying that because they really do hate President Trump and they don't care who knows it? Or are they virtue signaling, which I think a lot of that often is. Are they saying it because they just want people who they value socially to know that they agree with them because they want to increase those people's opinions of them. So it's really not about their feelings about this political person. It's about Them wanting to be approved or appreciated by other people they think feel that way, and and that's impossible to know. Uh, You know, for for me, with so many people opposed to the death penalty, you know, I I get nervous. You know, to use your serial killer example about how they should be killed, I actually uh, am not virtue signaling there because I actually get worried that I'm going to just kind of piss people off because I know a lot of people are very adamantly anti capital or anti capital punishment. In any case. Like, they don't think anybody should be given the death penalty. And uh, if I thought you guys all were definitely pro-death, then I guess that same thing could be virtue signaling because I'm playing to the home crowd, you know, so to speak. I don't know. Maybe I've made this more confusing. But I I see what you mean. I see what you mean, and I just love that you made me think. That's what I love about the updates. I love that you constantly make me reassess, reevaluate. Man, this podcast has made me grow so much as a person. You know, even like this week, you know, I get, I get so frustrated at moments with trying to figure out how to say foreign words, but you know, I'm a lot better at it than I was two years ago. And and I wouldn't be if you guys didn't bust my balls, you know, and, uh, maybe I'd be fucking railing about virtue signaling and maybe I would be hypocritical if you didn't, uh, call me out a little bit, JT. So I appreciate it. Thanks for challenging me. It's so important that we all challenge each other and keep each other in check. And I respect you guys all always do it. So respectfully. So, uh, hail Nimrod. That's all for the updates this week. time suckers i needed that we all did have a great week everybody take a second to honor those who have died fighting for their countries uh make sure your wean is nice and clean if you have one and if you don't you know if you got one of those hymens uh go to battle because because uh, apparently it's a uh, very helpful in war and keep on sucking